Welcome to NCIS Reports in the Field. This is Lee Clements. Tonight's guest is Chuck Howard. In his report from the field, we'll talk about his career and also a lot of cool things that he did during that time. I've known Chuck for years now. I believe I first met Chuck when he was at the Counterterrorism Directorate, and uh, he called us in Talladega, Alabama, when we were at the lake on home leave from Naples, Italy, uh, to talk to Kathy about doing a presentation to the director and to the Secretary of the Navy on the USS Cole attack. So that was the first time I'd actually talked to Chuck. But Chuck um, and I would have a moment of history where we were able to work together and it was a complete pleasure to work for Chuck. He was a great leader, great and very intelligent thinker. At the same time, he knew how to make the job fun. And that was what I really appreciated about Chuck. You know, we were doing stuff in Iraq that was classified. We can't, still can't discuss today, but uh, needless to say that we believe we saved a lot of lives uh, by doing the work that he was the director of at the Strategic Counterintelligence Director. He's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, became a U.S. Marine, served a few years in Marine, became involved with NIS. Before he joined NIS, got his law degree uh, through the Marines um, and eventually did join NCIS. Uh, where he would do a multitude of crimes at Camp Lejeune, uh, North Carolina, but he also um, was known to be specifically very good at working child abuse and child sex abuse cases. He was Asian of the Year in one of his tours overseas in Southeast Asia where he ran a very successful narcotics interdiction operation. And eventually he would become, where I would meet him, the director of the Strategic Counterintelligence Director in Baghdad, Iraq. He was a complete pleasure to work for, and he was a mentor as I would rise from being just a special agent to a supervisory special agent from, based on the work that I did at that mission in Iraq. He became a SAC of the Washington Field Office where he'd have interaction with the director of NCIS, but not only that, director uh, interaction with the Secretary of the Navy and the Secretary of Defense on some key cases that you'll hear about on this podcast. Chuck would go back to headquarters as the assistant director and then the executive assistant director for the director of intelligence and information sharing. Finally, he would retire, return to his beloved state of Maryland and become a Maryland state prosecutor. And now he's head of the anti-corruption unit in Annapolis, putting bad politicians in jail. So with that said, enjoy this podcast with Special Agent Chuck Howard. Today's guest, Chuck Howard, is a, a longtime friend uh, and a boss as well, uh, and is currently doing some great work in Maryland with the Maryland State Prosecutor's Office um, in the Anti-Corruption Unit. And um, we are going to hear his story today uh, of his career and all the things that he's been involved with, and he has been involved in a lot of things, let me tell you, um, as someone who has served with him in an overseas environment. Chuck, welcome to the show. Great to see you again. Thank you, Lee. It's a real honor to be asked. And uh, particularly somebody who knows me actually asked me to uh, speak. So I, you know, uh, I appreciate your uh, your courage in doing that. And, uh, <laughs> but it is great, great to chat with you. Well, it's it's always good seeing you again. And uh, you know, always I follow you on Facebook and all the exploits that you're getting involved in. Doing great work over there in the state of Maryland. I can tell you that. 
from what I've seen from picking chiefs of police at Annapolis to the work you've done at the state prosecutor's office is just amazing. It's great to see an alumna, alumni, uh, alumnus of uh, NIS go on to do great things out there in the in the world and stay on the right side of justice. <laughs> well, it's uh, I, I I think I've always had a um, I've always tried to avoid making too much money in my career in any particular job because I guess I would just waste it all in some debauched uh, <laughs> journeys, sort of like Hunter S. Thompson or something. So, you know, staying in government service keeps the paychecks reasonable, but not too absorbent. So I'm tempted to do anything bad. Uh, it's, been a lot, it's been a very interesting ride, I must say. Well, it's, it's great to have you today again. So let's, let's talk about your early life. I mean, you know, when I do these shows, I always talk to guys about what, and, and, I've, and the more I do these interviews, I'm finding some kind of consistent um, you know, uh, aspects of everyone's life and why they get involved with an agency like Naval Investigative Service at the time, I guess, when, when you were hired. I know it was when I was, and I know you were hired when you were Naval Investigative Service. Right. And so I, I'm always interested in why people get involved in this organization. But first, I would love to hear about your early life, uh, where you grew up, your parents, um, kind of your influences, but who were the people that influenced your life that, you know, made you go this way? Right. Well, it's, um, I'm sort of right back where I started. I was born in Baltimore. I'm a Maryland native and I grew up in a area of East Baltimore called Dundalk, which is a, a truly uh, working class community full of steel workers at the time because Bethlehem steel uh, plant was the major employer in the area. Of course, that's gone away. And uh, like many industrial areas, it's had, it's had some rough times. But so I was um, born, and born and raised in the Baltimore area, went to Baltimore public schools. My father, I guess my the beginnings of my interest in the military and law enforcement and the intelligence community and the law. Uh, and I've been very fortunate throughout my life because I've got a chance to play in every major uh you know, sandbox that I've wanted to from, from the law, law enforcement, counterintelligence, intel community, military, et cetera. And now finishing up as a, you know, as a lawyer again. <clears throat> but my father was a, uh, a lawyer, uh, but he had been with uh, the OSS in World War II. He had uh, en enlisted. He originally joined the horse cavalry. Uh, he was on a horse for maybe six months. Then they gave him trucks instead because I think they realized the Panzers were not going to do well. <laughs> it would be a bit uh, foreboding for a cavalry charge. And uh, he didn't like driving a truck. So he um, vo volunteered for this mysterious unit that turned out to be the OSS. And he was in the China Burma India theater with the Merrill's Marauders providing support uh, behind Japanese lines in that area. And then at the end of the World War II, he uh, stayed in the army and he was assigned to the counterintelligence corps. And that's where he spent his career uh, or what the remaining years. He didn't stay in the army for a full career, but uh, he stayed in through past uh, Korean War. When in Dundalk, Maryland, in addition to all the steel workers, there was a place called Fort Hollibird and that was the army's counterintelligence school back in the early days. And my father was assigned there as an instructor. And he met my mother, who was working there as an Army civilian uh, at a Christmas party. And the rest is history, so to speak. Well, that, that's fascinating. I want to ask you a question. You, I know sure. you probably read this book. It's a, you're, you're, you're tugging on my cloak and dagger 
Uh, yes. Army counterintelligence officer. I got that book of one of my tours. Right, I thought it was a fascinating book, but that all happened in Baltimore, and in Maryland, right? Right, right. And Fort Halberd was a was the home of the Army Counterintelligence Corps, and that's where their school was. And my dad, at the time he met my mother, he was teaching lock picking and crime scene photography. So he always thought. So dad was real handy to have around if you ever locked yourself out of your school box or locker or something like that in your car. So. Uh, he did that, and he and my mother, um, and my mother had been in the Navy during World War II. She's one of the first women to enlist in the Navy. Uh, so they, even though they didn't know each other during the war, after the war they met at Fort Holabird, and um, my mom had a ton of relatives in that area. So when ultimately Dad got out of the military, he settled down in Dundalk area of Baltimore, and uh, was going to law school at night in his final years of the military, and became a lawyer. Yeah. But he and my mother did have a chance to go for three years over to Japan uh, during the occupation after World War II and live in Japan. So my dad was a fluent Japanese speaker. Uh, he was also, he just was a larger-than-life character. He was an outstanding martial artist. He uh, had many, many great talents. But I, my interest in the military, I was raised to have, the, for both my mother and my father, to have a lot of respect for the military. Uh, in fact, our favorite time of the year was the Army-Navy game because it was a win-win for the kids. If mom won, we all got to go out to a great restaurant. If dad won, mom had to cook this fantastic meal. <laughs> so, so, you know, <laughs> liked at the time was whether you rooted for army or Navy. Sure. And um, so I was really interested in going in the military. And mm -hmm. that was my goal through high school. And so I was lucky enough to get an appointment to the Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. And so in 1976, I was reported into the Naval Academy. Uh, and that was the first time women were also admitted to the Naval Academy. And uh, I was raised right by my mother. I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> I don't see why anyone was complaining that we actually now had a co-ed institution we could go to. But, yeah. but it's, uh, I'm very, very proud of my classmates, who female classmates, the, the things they had to put up with as a first class, the challenges they met and overcame, it was fantastic. So it was a little bit of a history moment to be there. So I went in the, in the Naval Academy and my intent was to go into the Marine Corps really fascinated by land military operations uh as in more a little more so than the naval side but while i was at the naval academy we had a course on military law it was mandatory for everybody and most people hated it i was one of the only people that really loved it i thought this this is really interesting i find this law stuff really fascinating and so i you know and at the time i started reading in law started reading about law enforcement and I thought this would be great. Maybe I'll go into the military police when I go to um, in the Marine Corps. So uh, make a long story short, graduated in 1980 from the Naval Academy. I was able to select the Marine Corps, uh, reported in after spending a wonderful summer teaching drill and drinking beer at Annapolis uh, before TBS and then reported into the basic school and began my Marine officer career. The, and Quantico, went to the base tool Quantico, and at the time, the Marine Corps was holding out that you should come in the Marine Corps from the Naval Academy because you have so many career options for you. Look at all these different MOSs we have. It's wonderful. And then you get there, and you're all excited. And I, I literally stayed up all night, Lee, trying to decide if I wanted to go intelligence or military police. I was really concerned with that. And then got there in the morning when we did our big selection, and I'd done well in Quantico, so my class rank was pretty good. Uh, 
and the monitor gets up essentially says, okay, we have no openings in intelligence. We have no openings in military police. We have no openings in this, no openings in that. Somebody said, well, what do you have, sir? And I was like, we infantry and artillery. <laughs> and a couple. No. So, Chuck, so I want to go back uh, before we, we finish with your uh, with your uh, OCS. I mean, excuse me, your uh, your uh, your time at the uh, new new lieutenant school there in Quantico. Um, going back to the academy, would you compare and contrast the experience your when you your cultural experience with the academy to the Marine Corps when you went to Quantico for uh, for basic? Because yeah. I, I just want to say, was it a culture shock to all of a sudden show up at uh, the academy and be treated like, you know, the plebe, whatever they call them? Um, well, the, the academy is a, that first, the, I, I think the world of the Naval Academy, I think it's the, yeah. I, I do believe, and I know many would disagree that yeah. went to West Point or Colorado Springs, but I do believe it's the finest military academy in the country. For a number of different reasons. One is they do a, a superb job, I think, of build, taking whatever raw material you bring as a leader and molding that. Treat it as a plebe. Um, I always laugh. People say, I couldn't put up with that. Well, I say, well, yes, you can, because you really don't have a choice. You're sitting there. It's, it you to not do what they're screaming at you to do. <laughs> you imagine else. So, so, so you, you work work through that. Um, but then you gradually... Um, accumulate a lot of what are in every other college, a civilian college or normal rights of life, and you are treated as privileges at the Naval Academy, but you eventually gain privileges. And at least for someone like myself, it was a great education and maturation process. Right. And you're exposed to the Marine Corps, just like you're exposed to submarines and aviation and surface warfare. I um, did two summers on board a ship uh, that was fantastic, almost made me rethink the Marines just because I really liked the Navy side too. I went on exchange with the Japanese uh, Navy, their Maritime Self-Defense Force. Uh, so that was a fantastic time over in Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, the Navy sent me to Japan uh, because I spoke Chinese, because really? I studied Chinese at the Naval Academy. And the assignment officer did not know there was a difference. <laughs> and I know this because I was standing outside his office when I went to pick up my orders. And one of the yeoman there was saying, well, this we're sending this guy to Japan, but he's, he speaks Chinese. And the guy said Chinese, Japanese, what's the difference? So <laughs> I, it was horrible, but it was wonderful. So, and I could read enough uh, kanji, the Japanese letters to be able to determine where the restroom was and, you know, et cetera. Um, but it was a fantastic experience. So I got all that and you, you it really is um, world-class. And then you go to the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps is a completely different animal. <clears throat> It is, um, and I was with I was with a number of Naval Academy graduates uh, in, in my TBS class, but the majority were OCS people from the platoon leaders class, et cetera, or just from enlisted go to OCS. Uh, and I love the way the Marine Corps does that because all officers, everyone who's a Marine officer, has to go through this extensive class. It's almost like the Marine Corps Academy, right. and you're not treated truly like a a, a boot like a recruit, a recruit training or at OCS, mm -hmm. but you're certainly not treated like a mature adult. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> Throughout that, to to learn to be essentially a basic infantryman and be, to lead an infantry platoon, and then you can go off to follow on education as you were. So the culture shock was great, but I was surrounded with by a lot of Naval Academy uh, classmates 
mainly because our year at the Naval Academy, they had a, uh, what was called the nuclear draft. Hyman Rickover decided he wasn't getting all the, uh, the best and brightest of the Navy to sign up for submarines. Uh, so even though he had enough volunteers to fill the submarine slots, but he wanted to get something else. So if your, Jeep, your grade point average was above a certain level, you got a draft letter for, to report for a mandatory interview with Simon uh, Hyman Rickover to go into submarines. And I've and, heard about these interviews. Oh, there. Well, I fortunately didn't have to go because okay. <laughs> I got a letter. But uh -huh. the Marine Corps Service selection was at that time about 30 days before the Navy's selection of whether you go air aviation or on what picture ship if you go on SWO, etc. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> a lot of bright people with the Naval Academy figured out that all they wanted to do was fly and they didn't care if they're wearing a blue suit or a green suit. Mm -hmm. So I'll take a Marine option aviation contract and mm -hmm. I won't have to go to the interview. <laughs> and the, the, the official Naval Academy word, oh, it's just an interview. You know, I have friends of mine that went there. There was nothing you could do. You were sucked into nukes. I had a guy that actually broke a model on uh, Rickover's desk. Someone that's- <laughs> I've heard this story. Someone answered every question with the word Navy Air. Both of them ended up in nuke school. So, so, <laughs> so a lot of very bright kids, though, because they made the only you're guaranteed Marine Corps if you had been in the Marine Corps as an enlisted. Uh, I had one naval chemistry classmate of mine, a fellow Chinese student, Montel Williams. He was a talk oh, sure. show host. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had to laugh in his official biography, Montel's a fluent Chinese speaker. Well, I don't know when that happened because it's definitely Oh my goodness. <laughs> but Montel's a great guy. Do you and, do you remind uh, him that at uh, when you guys have reunions at yeah, Annapolis? Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> okay, good. We were both from Baltimore. Okay. So uh, here's a quick uh, you'll have to you feel free to edit all this stuff out. You do, no, I said these story, this is what makes the show. Montel and I are sitting, the, the Chinese class is like 11 people uh -huh. at this stage. And I'm, so I'm sitting next to Montel. Montel's from Baltimore too. So we're chatting. And the Naval Academy had extra money for extracurriculars. Everybody that was in the Chinese class were also members of the Chinese club. And we decided, why don't we go out for a cultural visit uh, during the week? And we convinced the Naval Academy to buy, you know, get a bus and we all look it on and we'll go out and visit a cultural site. So the cultural, we did this for about, three, four months, the cultural sites Montel and I convinced everybody to go to were all our favorite Chinese restaurants in Baltimore. So we'd come up from it, get on it, and everybody wanted to go because it's the middle of the week. You normally weren't allowed out of the academy. And the instructors figured out what we're doing, like the Chinese food too. So they all came on. We get on the bus, we drive up to Baltimore or some of these places. And we, until they cracked down on it, it was a, it was a great gig. That was a good gig. Favorite Montel story. But Montel had been a Marine before he went in. So he would have been guaranteed a uh, Marine slot. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he had some eye issues, some uh, vision problems, so he couldn't go in the Marine Corps. So he, he, he went directly into Naval Intelligence. And at the time, you couldn't go directly into Naval Intelligence unless you had a physical disability or something. So he, but he did that. Uh, but I, everybody else that went in, it was purely by your grade point average, your class standing. Mm -hmm. So mine was pretty good. I knew I was getting in. A lot of these people that wanted to fly, their grades were pretty good to go in. So it's one of the first years that Marine Corps was seriously oversubscribed because at the time only about one sixth of the academy was allowed to go into the Marine Corps. So all the football players who traditionally go into the Marine Corps uh, 
some of the grades weren't very good and they, they didn't make the cut. So, so I was surrounded by very bright Naval Academy pilots with a guarantee, a guaranteed pilot contract. So they were only paying enough attention in TBS to do the, to get through. <laughs> to figure out. So, so that made it somewhat endurable. And that was, that was fun. Oh, but at the time, fun. everybody with the aviation contract was wearing, got, trying to wear goggles at night. So they didn't get a branch in the eye and their 20, lose their 20-20 vision. So that was oh, the only way to lose your aviation contract at the time. Uh, so it was a great group. It's, uh, the Marine Corps, when I went in, was full of Vietnam vets. Okay. You know, and was the at last date, the draft had ended, you know, a few years ago, but, uh, but only a couple. So there were, so we had a lot of people who uh, had been drafted or came in with GEDs and, and not high school graduates in the, in the, in the enlisted uh, corps. And, uh, but a lot of the, but we had some, I had some great enlisted senior leaders and great officer role models that were war veterans. Mm-hmm. And the thing of the distinguish, one distinguishing factor between a military veteran who's seen action and one who hasn't is the one who has seen action has usually, not all, there's some difficult people in that regard. They usually have a much more reasonable idea of what's really important and what's not. Mm-hmm. So less of the, you know, fluff and more, let's focus on this, but it kept you very tactically real. So after I found out I couldn't go into either intelligence or military police, I thought hard about it. And I realized that, well, infantry is okay, but you know, that last time I checked artillery had trucks and Jeeps. (laughs) 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 And we we weren't really carrying those in a backpack. So (laughs) that might be better lifestyle. A little bit. And, oh, the training's at an army base, and that's got to be easier than going to uh, and staying in Quantico, which the Marine uh, infantry option had to stay and do that. So I volunteered for, volunteered, <laughs> was volunteer for field artillery, went to Fort Sill, uh, Oklahoma, uh, went through the Army Artillery School. In fact, I was an honor graduate of the Army Ar- Ar- Artillery School, uh, and then went from there to Camp Lejeune. So at the time in the Marine Corps, you had, if you've been in combat arms for a year, you could apply to transfer to one of the other military occupational specialties that were under strength. And both military police and intel were under strength. Okay. So uh, I d- it was assigned to 5th Battalion, 10th Marines, uh, self-propelled artillery uh, battalion, uh, and had a great time. You know, enjoyed being there with, you know, leading Marines, being commander Marines was fantastic. So, but I knew I didn't want to stay in artillery or, uh, for career. If I was going to stay in the Marine Corps, I wanted to be in intelligence or military police. Sure, and, said, sure. and I was what, you know, watching cop shows by this time, you know, really interested in the, the, the things of being a police work. Yeah. So I put in for uh, both military police and intel were short. I put in for, I was with two other uh, Marine Corps friends of mine. J.P. Hill, who unfortunately has passed on, and Scott James, who later became an NC, NIS agent, NCIS okay. agent. Okay. Yeah. And we were, all, we we're all three in artillery. We all wanted to transfer. So I was the first one to put the paperwork in. And I listed two choices. Number one choice, military police. Number two choice, intelligence. And I got a call from the monitor at D.C. and said, listen, uh, I noticed in your record that you speak Chinese. 
don't you think you really want to go in intelligence? I said, no, no, sir. I've got my heart set on military police. That's what I really want to go. Uh, is that going to be a problem? Oh, no, we're short of those two. Don't worry about it. Close down. So next week I get my orders. Of course, I went to intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> as and, it were, as it, as yeah, it, as it and, goes. And my two friends learned from my mistake. They only put in one choice. Mm-hmm. AP, my one friend, really wanted to be intelligence. He got that. And Scott really wanted to be military police, and he got that. <laughs> so, oh, wow. So That's that. great. So I went into intelligence, uh, went to intelligence school, and then they were trying to say, where now, where would you like to be assigned after intelligence school? And I said, well, how about aviation? An aviation unit would be good. Uh, you know, something I haven't experienced. Oh, well, all our aviation slots are full. Oh, how about going to uh, like a tank battalion? That'd be that'd be really interesting because I, I kind of it always liked tanks and things like that. Oh, no, we those slots are full. Hmm. How about going back to artillery? Oh no, those slots are full. I said, well, how about anywhere but the infantry? So of course I got assigned to the infantry. <laughs> <laughs> you did all of that. You did all of that, and you ended up in the infantry. And then went into infantry. So I ended up back in the infantry, and actually, I went to first battalion, second marines in Camp Lejeune. Uh, became the rest two, and then later became a company commander there because the colonel didn't like this one infantry company commander and fired him and appointed me a company commander because I guess he <laughs> was desperate. So, so I went to <laughs> infantry company commander at the same time as being an intel officer. And you're the scout sniper platoon leader when you're at S2, and it's just fun. So one, two, we did uh, deployments. Did a deployment over to the Far East, to Westpac out of Okinawa. And then out of there, we spent most of our time in either Korea or the Philippines. So we got a chance to work overseas there and doing some real world intel work over there. And then we also had the Northern NATO mission. So we went to cold weather training and deployed to the Arctic in Northern Norway uh, two times for several months apiece. And, um, and that was really interesting. And it's beautiful over there. But the beauty sort of wears off after about 10 minutes and then you're just cold. So it's miserable. You know? So <laughs> Hot and miserable or cold and miserable. I, I tried to advocate the Marine Corps to establish a temperate warfare school. Bermuda, <laughs> so, <laughs> maybe, or somewhere, you know, where we would only train to fight in mild, temperate climates, no Arctic, <laughs> no desert, but they never listened to me on that. So, That's interesting. <laughs> so I was doing, I did that and, and spent the rest of my Marine Corps time. I had a five year active duty obligation out of uh, Annapolis. Uh, I thought about going to, at the time I was thinking about still trying now that now trying to decide, I liked Intel, mm-hmm. but I real the Marine Corps at the time, I realized I was, and I really liked being a company commander and I like working with young Marines, helping influence a career, just fantastic. Um, and I'd been promoted to captain eventually. And I ultimately in the reserves, I got up to Navy captain as well, but you get more respect mm-hmm. as a Marine but it was uh uh it was great but i realized i was never going to command anything again as an intelligence officer i was always going to be someone's staff officer right and and, you know and other things were attractive but that just i felt that that wasn't as attractive to me as as and i was still very interested in that military law class and in law enforcement so to make a long story short which i've already failed that requirement but <laughs> uh, about six months before my a- a- end of active duty before mm-hmm. my active duty time was due to end i 
submitted applications to the FBI, NCIS, and to law school. Mm-hmm. And didn't went to interviews at Camp Lejeune, saw some of the uh, historic uh, officers. So I'll tell you my my first. Um, the, the the stories of, of of the screening boards are always legendary. Yeah, my first NIS interview went to Camp. FBI went up to I think Chapel Hill and okay. interview with the office there, and that was very professional and all well done. Uh, the FBI. Let me tell you, the FBI interview first. So FBI interview, and it was winter at this time. It was really cold, and I didn't have a civilian overcoat. Oh, so I took this na- the Navy overcoat that we wore in Annapolis, took those things I would just wear. I'll wear it in the office, but then I'll take it off real quick. And so I'll just be wearing my suit. <laughs> yeah. And of course, finish all the FBI board. The guy walks me out. Oh, that looks like the overcoat I had in the Navy. <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> my sack was pretty crash. You're in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I get this call by the NCI. And I'd worked with NIS at Camp Lejeune quite a bit uh, because our units, as in, to this day, I believe, in Lejeune is a hotbed. As much as the military has a hotbed of crime, Camp Lejeune is it. For, where you have, we at the time, a lot of violent crimes, a lot of homicides. And uh, you, you just, as an officer, you start working with the NIS agents there and got to know some of them. And so they said, oh, you should, you should put in an application here, too. And I said, this would be great because I love working with the uh, with the military. So I put, put in for NIS and I get this call and I'm in, in, in my uniform in the uh, office at the battalion and said, we, we just had someone cancer. Can you make a screening board in 10 minutes? I said, well, yeah. I can <laughs> so I gave him, and I showed up in a, I had camis on, you know, you, and I said, but I, and I told him, but I'm, I don't have a suit here. I've just got camis, you know, it just, uh-huh. uh, oh, that's, that's, that's fine. That's fine. So I show up, go through the interview, everything's golden. And then at the end said, have you applied to any other agencies? I said, well, yeah, I did apply to the FBI. Do you wear your uniform to your FBI interview? Immediately <laughs> 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 so in the finest NCIS or at the time NIS tradition. And I said, no, but this guy over here <laughs> told me it was okay. So it wasn't like I was, you know, really setting me a fashion uh-huh. on fire. But I will tell you, the two interviews, I knew that if I had a choice, I'd want to work for NIS back then. Yeah. yeah. So go six months goes by, comes up, haven't heard anything from either FBI or NIS. But I did hear from law school and got accepted. Mm-hmm. So I went to the University of Maryland's uh, law school here and in, in uh, Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And two weeks after I started law school, within the same week, I got a call from NIS and the FBI. Wow. Offer me a job. Okay. Now I'd already taken my savings and plunked down tuition. Oh boy. And law school was also warm. It was dry. It was a co-ed environment. And it was, I didn't have to work that hard. So I was loving <laughs> life a little bit at law school. So listen, I just I just put this, you know, deposit down. I've already paid the tuition. I'm into mm-hmm. a class now. And mm-hmm. you know, so I kind of reluctantly turned them down. And say, you know, and I thought, well, that's that's it. So I'm in law school and uh, it started. I was wasn't going to do anything with the military. I was, you know, I used to say the happiest day in my life. This is before I had kids. was the day I saw Camp Lejeune in the rearview mirror for the last what I thought. Last time. <laughs> I've been yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, I, you know, 
practice law now, I guess, I'm, you know, and interested at the time in being criminal law and a prosecutor. And so, um, but after about two, three months, I don't know if my beer consumption was going up or what, you know, but the money started to dry out a little bit. I said, Chuck, you're going to have to work. You know, we didn't have the GI Bill at that time. We had something called Veterans Assistance. It was good, but it wasn't the GI Bill. So you did, sure. you're still paying your way through law school. But I kept my Maryland residence throughout my time. So it was paying a reduced fee, but still it was significant. So I'm going to have to get a job. And I started like, maybe I can deliver pizza, you know, or do something. Uh, and then at that day, you know, good Lord is looking after me because the Marine Corps had sent me a letter. It said, oh, by the way, we need an intelligence officer at this reserve unit in Baltimore. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, could Perfect. you, you know, if you're available. Because I'd still, we still had a year of inactive reserve obligations. Mm-hmm. I was still technically a Marine Corps captain now mm-hmm. in the reserves. So I went to the, went to the reserve center, interviewed. They thought it was great. And they were desperate probably. So I affiliated with the Marine Corps Reserve and in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And they pay you four days pay for two days work. So that made enough difference. And then I got a job as a law clerk for uh, the public defender's office doing legal research, which paid like four seventy five an hour. I thought it was, a, you know, between the two of them, <laughs> made enough money to live and then uh, was doing well. So skip ahead. After another year of law school, law school's three years. I was in my second year uh, coming to the end of it. And it's the Marine Corps was just, it was okay. But there was the Marine Corps Reserve Program for Intel officers at the time was very, very small. So they wanted to, they wanted to make me a combat engineer oh. for which I knew nothing. They sent me to a two week combat engineer class down in Lejeune, Courthouse Bay. And uh, it was like kids playing with toys. They, we, we'd get behind bulldozers and make sandcastles and then somebody else would come over and knock over your sandcastle. And, you know. So the thought of going to war as a combat engineer, I would be dangerous. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, cause the reserve unit in Baltimore is a combat engineer battalion. So I said, this is not looking good. Then I went to an Intel school for two weeks at Damn Neck, uh, the reserves paid for. And I was working with, uh, there were a lot of Navy Intel officers in that class and they, uh, Tell you, hey, you ought to think about inter-service transfers. We sometimes bring people into the reserve program through inter-service transfers. Mm-hmm. I said, really? And they, all the Navy reserve units do real-world intel. It's not sure. Marine Corps yeah. exercises and mm-hmm. let's go invite, invade the country of Finlandia or something like that. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in the Navy got to do real stuff. So I said, hey, that sounds Sounds good. And unlike a lot of Marines, I didn't have a pre- I don't think I had a prejudice against the Navy having gone to Naval Academy. I thought they were great guys, too. Mm-hmm. So but some people never understood that ability to transfer. over. So I transferred over to the. Um, I filled out an application, went to board interviews and was accepted and was commissioned as a lieutenant in the Navy Reserve. Okay. So in one one week, one month. I was drilled one weekend as a Marine Corps captain, my last time. And then, then two weeks later, I showed up in Navy uniform to drill as a Navy lieutenant at uh, Andrews Air Force Base. So come to the part of the story where how did I get with NIS? The Navy didn't know what to do with a Marine Intel guy. Because they, you know, what all of the stuff I'd done had mostly been like human and some CI, you know, patrolling, but not 
I didn't know much about aviation as we determined. I didn't go to an aviation unit. I didn't know about ships or radars or any of this other stuff. So the guy, old prior enlisted guy that's there, great Navy commanders, he has uh, Southern accent saying, son, I do not know what I'm going to do with you. I got no other choice. You got to go to this NIS reserve unit. Would you, would you do that? And I said, NIS, yeah, I actually applied to that once. That'd be interesting. So went over uh, to that, sent me to the Navy yard, <laughs> showed up and was assigned to an NIS reserve unit and ultimately became a reserve agent. And that based on a grueling two week class, <laughs> <laughs> which again, was about as dangerous as an agent as I was as a combat engineer. So <laughs> it <don't> worked for <laughs> that. Um, but it worked out for me. And I guess I got, now I could, you know, hang out with NIS, see if I would have made the right career choice. And I, I really enjoyed the re- agents. I li- like the people in the reserve program quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them at the time were cops or mm-hmm. agents and other organizations. And, uh, and they took the, I don't want to, disrespect the training because they did take that responsibility for a year. So they wouldn't credential you as a reserve agent. Mm-hmm. So they were very confident you could not shoot somebody or, you know, embarrass <laughs> yourself going through, going through the lines. So then, uh, so I, I'm in law school, graduate from law school. I did really well in law school. I, I think because I was warm, dry, and law school was based on a Socratic method of the professor stands in the room and screams at you and, and people fall apart. But if you've been in the Marine Corps, you call that screaming? No. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm still passing, right? Okay. Scream away. You know? And so I graduated the top of class and, um, or number two in a class of 250 people. And so I did well. So from that, I was able to parlay that into a, uh, and, and it did other things like the, they had this thing in law review and law school where that's a, considered a prestigious thing. Well, I did that. And so mm-hmm. I got to be chief of that. And so I'd done enough to where I could get a really high paying job as a lawyer at a law school, which of course, immediately I did not. <laughs> so so <laughs> but I, did clerk, I did clerk for a uh, federal appellate judge. Uh, Judge Frank Murnahan on the U.S. Court of Appeals for Fourth Circuit. That's considered a semi-prestigious thing for law students to do. And so that did that. Uh, fascinating. We were at, the courthouse was in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Court would go and sit at other places. We had beach sittings where the court would sit down at Wrightsville really? Beach in Wilmington and uh, Hilton. So the Fourth Circuit, the judges would move around and hear cases. Oh, yeah. The Fourth Circuit. Yeah. Judge could sit in any federal courtroom. The court, even though it has a beautiful courthouse okay. in uh, Richmond. Okay. And every judge has chambers there, but the, my judge actually lived in Baltimore. Oh, wow. Uh, so there are judges from each of the states that are in the Fourth Circuit. And so, and the Fourth Circuit can actually decide to sit in any place there's a federal courthouse. So it happens to be a federal courthouse in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. So they just happened every summer to go sit at that court. <laughs> <laughs> there was a federal courthouse in Charleston. So I went down there one time, but most of the time it was in Richmond. And you would your office was in Baltimore, but they would pay you per diem down in Richmond's a fine city. So mm-hmm. it was fun mm-hmm. and really fascinating. And I met a lot of uh, Alan Dershowitz, uh, William Kunstler. I met a lot of you know famous lawyers if you're in the lawyer world. 
they were sure. coming to argue cases in front of the Fourth Circuit. <clears throat> so that was that was an interesting time. So yeah. um, did that. Still knew I wanted to be a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> after the uh, finished with the Fourth Circuit, I got hired by the city of Baltimore at the state's attorney's office, Baltimore okay. City State's Attorney, as an assistant state's attorney, and started being a prosecutor. So I'd <clears throat> done that for a little over a year. And then nine, so that was 89. Then in 90, the end of 90, we have Desert Storm right. in Desert Shield. And I got recalled to active duty, I volunteered, but I got recalled officially. Uh, the story you told your employer, you were involuntarily recalled, but <laughs> volunteered to be involuntarily recalled. <laughs> yeah. And um, <clears throat> so I got recalled. And like other reserve agents have been recalled, what would the, the NIS did at the time was to use us to backfill for agents in the states so they can send the special agents over to the combat area. And, and so I got sent to Camp Lejeune, returned to Camp Lejeune as a reserve agent to assist and work there. And I can say, Lee, without a doubt that there were no Iraqis that came across the beach in Onslow Beach <laughs> during my tour in Camp Lejeune. <laughs> well but, done. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Kind of proud of that you know that, everybody everybody <laughs> contributes. some of us contribute more than others but you know we each have a role and um i think most of us were supposed we, we're supposed to be counterintelligence because we're all naval intelligence officers we're supposed mm -hmm. to be working counterintelligence. well lejeune didn't have much for that so they just assigned us to, i got assigned to the property squad and started working and being a lawyer helped because i knew kind of and a prosecutor so i could mm -hmm. i end up writing everybody's search warrants for them and doing all <laughs> you're a valued asset yeah, that's that's the way. Um, so we worked a number of good cases. Mm -hmm. And I also pitched in on several homicides. I found that fascinating. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it was much more exciting to me, as much as a courtroom could be exciting, and court, some trials can be very exciting, mm -hmm. it was much more exciting to me to be there in the beginning of the case. The lights right. are flashing, people crying, trying to put mm -hmm. the puzzle together, something we, mm -hmm. every NCS agent faces, you know, when you rock up on the scene, trying mm -hmm. to figure out what's going on, sure. you know, and, and we had a, um, a number of cases there. So I, uh, at the time, I was the station there too. I had met this uh, Marine Corps JAG captain mm -hmm. and uh, we became involved romantically. And mm -hmm. I thought this, this is pretty cool. So I got mm -hmm. something down here. It's fun. I enjoy this. Got this lady that actually puts up with me for a little bit. This is great. <laughs> and so the boss there, the, uh, John Michaud was the agent, special agent in charge. He's larger than life. Oh, uh, Michael B. Jones, the ASAC, um, just crusty old fellow and a great guy. And he said, Jock, you gotta, yeah, yeah. Look at this. You can you know, come to NIS, see the world through a cop's eyes. You know, and it, it was, and I still started sitting back, you know, this is great. And but I still remember the sun going down over Subic Bay. I still remember the mountains in Korea. I still remember, you know, and I missed some of that international travel stuff too. Mm -hmm. So um, I put in, they, I put in an application to be an agent. They held the board and everything before I was discharged. Okay. So I went back to Baltimore, resigned my job as a, an assistant state's attorney and then reported in Quetzi. Uh, quite rightly, they expected, even though you're reserve agent, you need to go through the whole course. <laughs> you needed to, to do that. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, sure. I went back, went back to Camp Lejeune, 
was my first NIS office at the time. Uh, that was a good office. She had a lot of good people in that office. Oh, Sam Worth. Yep. Uh, Sam, um, I don't know how many stories you want about any of the others, but <laughs> I could remember this. Well, it, they'll tell you several in, in Seriata, but we had grid off. We had some great cases. Mm-hmm. We had several serial murders. Um, mm-hmm. We had um, uh, a number of property cases, a lot of things coming back from Desert Storm. Mm-hmm. A big case I did was on a lot of AK-47s being smuggled. Oh, sure. We had yeah. people welding false bottoms to the uh, to the uh, trucks and motorized wow. vehicles, stacking AKs in there, and then coming back. And of course, no no customs inspectors really looking at any of the military equipment. They would empty out grenades. I mean, they empty out the uh, fire extinguishers, powder fire extinguishers. They put grenades in it, uh, Iraqi grenades, and fill it back <laughs> up with powder. They had pistols they smuggled. So one unit was just rife with it. So uh, we flipped one of the uh, one of the guys in the unit, did an undercover buy with the AK-47s uh, who had gotten out of the Marine Corps. Everybody said, oh, they're war trophies. Now this kid thought he was selling them to a, a white supremacist gang because they are war trophies until you need the money. Yeah. And they're, so we lured this guy. He's out of the Marine Corps. We lured him back to Lejeune or to Jacksonville. I know I was supposed to call ATF because it's a gun case. I called him on a Friday afternoon, maybe about 5.36. Nobody answered. I don't know. I left a message. <laughs> to to raid the next day. I don't know why they didn't yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Well, they were good well, government employees. They went home at four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, who, who likes to share? We all like to do our own, do our own cases. <laughs> So we uh, we raided, uh, lured a guy in in an undercover buy. Uh, we had it all set up and wired, and and with thank God we had other signals because the wire failed. You know, <laughs> we had some dis- signals, so we all charged in there, and it was all captured on video. And I'm very proud of my first undercover role in, or first big raid and being captured on video. And I was sure. When I busted down that door and you know, leading the charge, and one, you see us all running to the place. I've never beaten anyone in a foot race. As you know, I'm built for comfort, not speed. But, <laughs> but I never, you see me go in the door. Then oh, it feels like five minutes later, a couple other agents come charge you. So I'm going in by myself uh, with my big six shooter. Uh, and they've got AK-47s. But we arranged for the undercover to break them up. Uh, break them open because we wanted to make sure they were all all the parts were there so that sure. I wasn't going to run just have somebody pointing an AK-47 at me and I was sure I said police police let me see your hands all this stuff what comes across in the video is just me screaming ah you know literally that got attention and he dropped and so we had that so tonight on the local camp. news federal agent loses it Losing. That was not losing. It was a vocalization of an urgency. I think. <laughs> so he, he did what I wanted him to do, whether he heard any English words. <laughs> so we did that, and that was fun. And we had uh, other cases, significant other cases. Uh, we had several guys that ended up on military death row. They were never actually executed because there was. Uh, we had a case where a uh, Marine was killed. Uh, out in town in, in uh, Jacksonville. And it turned out that uh, a number of Marines were 
drinking one night, they decide to go out and kill a white or African American Marines. They decide to go out and kill a white Marine at random. So they did, and they gunned him down in an alley. It was a very hard crime to solve because at the time, you know, we went through all the standard thing. Was he robbed? No, we found witnesses. He'd spent his last dime there. Bruce Warshawski was the big case agent on the first one. Sure. And it helped him out. And uh, Bruce was fantastic and thorough. And he, you know, but it was hard because you're going through all these. Did anybody like him? No, everybody liked the guy. Did he get in a fight at a bar? No, he, was, he couldn't be robbed, you know, just, but he ended up dead and shot with a shotgun. Mm -hmm. So skip ahead uh, about a week. I'm the duty agent. We get another report of a body, but this time on base, uh, respond and it's just Marine that was killed with a shotgun. In this case, uh, this, this Marine happened to be African-American as well, or, or African-American, not white, but the similarities in the way of the, uh, from the crime scene. So I did the crime scene on that. And along with, as everything in Lejeune, 100 other agents came in. Sure. I can't remember who was the ultimate case, whether it was Sam or Bruce just followed it in. But we saw similarities. We got a partial, I found a witness with a partial license plate of a car scene, leaving the scene. Right, and it was a vanity tag, so we we're able to piece that together. And to make a long story short, the um, two of the guys, the original six, the trigger man and his best friend, they kind of liked the whole killing thing. So they now they decided to kill this other Marine because the one guy wanted to, he was married to a woman that this other guy was interested in. So they went, and we, she may or may not have helped set him up, but she started to take witness, so it was okay. But you know, so they lured him to this place uh, a trailer park and shot him there uh and so both were able to con uh convict all of them it involved at the end sam worth john michaud may have been bruce as well or in um and uh kevin and maybe a few other agents flew out because the marine unit was all an infantry unit and they had all deployed on an amphib getting ready to go out for a big exercise. So they flew in helicopters out to the amphib, conducted the interrogations, got confessions, brought, brought the Marines back. And it was a, uh, it, it was a well done case. So the two, the trigger, everybody, all the six went to jail, but the two, the trigger man and his best friend who involved both crimes ultimately got the death penalty. But as I said, the military didn't execute. So that, that was a good case. So the motive on the first killing was, it wasn't uh, strictly because the guy was white. This guy was. Yeah. No, it was a racial hate crime. They wanted to go oh, out wow. and kill a, uh, uh, a white Marine at random, is the way they describe it. And they just found mm -hmm. one that was walking by himself and chased him down an alley and shot him. Just random. They just saw yeah. this guy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. And, and then the second one was the. Uh, was, uh, was romantic triangle. It's those are the easiest. Romantic <laughs> triangle. That's the ones that'll get you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that, that'll come back. So we had, we had a number of fairly interesting homicides there. We had a large number of $8 million arson. We had a bunch of cases. I could talk about Lejeune all day. But it was really a, it was a great training for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of wonderful role models and mentors. Mm -hmm. uh, they friends for life in that group. Sure. Uh, some of them are still there, <laughs> you know, in the in their textbook. <laughs> uh, people like Ket, uh, Kevin Nalen, people like yeah. Bruce, Bruce Warshawski, so he's a small world. Bruce Warshawski was an agent there. He was my first uh, company commander in the Marine Corps. We were both in the Marines. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, wow. So uh, 
And Scott James, who had mentioned before, who had gone right into NIS after he, when he left the Marine Corps as a military police officer, he went right into NIS and he later became a polygrapher. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I stayed at Lejeune. I married the uh, Marine JAG officer you know, I mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, wonderful lady, uh, Lori. We ultimately uh, got divorced later, but we've had three, we had three wonderful kids together and right. uh, she's, she now works with the Navy IG as a lawyer. Oh, wow. Because I remember she so, worked at uh, NCIS headquarters for a while. She did. Right? She did. Yes. 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 We actually met on a homicide case. She she was a salsa, <clears throat> and she was trying to win the case, and I was trying to flirt. <laughs> she was trying to get dollars for me until she, but she won, and she was pretty happy about that. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> and the rest was history. So we. That's great. Uh, yeah. So we got married, and then I was at Lejeune for three years. Uh, worked my way through property crimes, mm-hmm. did um, some persons, then got over to New River and finished my time there. I was at uh, one of the agents at MCAS New River. Mm-hmm. Uh, so worked a variety of case, uh, uh, crimes there. Great, mm-hmm. be- best training in the world for someone, particularly someone like me who read, knew a lot about the law and not a lot about law enforcement. Right. To have so many great, uh, unfortunately tragic crimes, but things that sure. were great learning opportunities sure. to learn about Processing. I never, the rest of my NCS career, I've never been upset about a crime. Okay, bodies there. All right. You do, you find yourself, you do you find yourself in your here. current job looking back now with all that experience to kind of understanding crime as, as you look at these cases? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, being a prosecutor informed my law enforcement world and being a law enforcement officer informed this. In my current role, let's skip ahead, what I am now is I'm the Maryland State Prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And it's an independent agency that in both investigates and prosecutes political corruption, official misconduct, bribery, perjury, a number of uh, election law, campaign finance law violations. It's basically sure. independent because the local prosecutors are often have close ties with these mm-hmm. public officials. So mm-hmm. you can come in and it's a six year appointment. So which I, they can't fire me unless I you know, sure. they impeach me. Yeah, uh, sure. So I probably got a month left. Who knows? <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> but it is a, it's a great job. But it, this is the perfect way for me to end my career because I'm directing investigations now, which I know something about. Directing prosecutions, which I know something about. Mm-hmm. And there's a few people that know a lot about each. You know, so sure. that, that's kind of a different value added. So sure. I went from, uh, yeah, went from Lejeune. <clears throat> uh, my wife at the time got transferred to Paris Island. And so I convinced NCIS after begging uh, to go to uh, to get a sta- station at MCS Beaufort down mm-hmm. in Paris Island, Nisra Paris Island. Uh, of course, there was a six month gap. She got transferred. There was a vacancy. It took NCIS six months to, con- to transfer me. Uh, she was pregnant with our second uh, first child. Mm-hmm. First child. Her water broke. I was I set a land speed record from Camp Lejeune to Paris Island, <laughs> Beaufort Naval Hospital, including a flat tire that I changed on the way <laughs> to get down there. <laughs> First child to be born. And then wow. while, you know, the next week, uh, Code 25 sent my orders and I was <laughs> officially transferred down to uh, to Beaufort. So it was and that was great. Spent three years. So I'd been three years of Lejeune, three years of Beaufort. It was Wonderful. I would have stayed there forever. But my wife was going to get out of the Marine Corps mm-hmm. and 
she did not want to stay in Buford. Right. She thought Buford had too many Yankees. She's from Georgia. And she thought, you know, I said, well, it is the South, but no, no, there's too many. And it was a small place and she wanted to be a lawyer and there wasn't a lot of legal jobs, et cetera. She mm -hmm. said, I know I'll get out of the Marine Corps if and only if you get transferred somewhere good. Mm -hmm. So I would, I love Buford. It was a small office, great people. And in a small office, you get to work almost all the crimes, you know, sure. so it's not big, big squads and things. So mm -hmm. I moved into a little bit of the counterintelligence world there. Okay. I picked up my slot. So I was doing that in addition to that. So, um, so I said, I'll, I'll, okay, uh, I faithfully said, I will put in for good spots. And I did. I put in for Singapore, one agent slot, and London, one agent vacancy. Wait. Knowing full <laughs> well, I wasn't going to get either of them. And, uh, but she won't listen to this, hopefully. <laughs> I knew, you know, I'm, I'm in good faith. I did what you asked me to do. So, but of course, I got Singapore. So right. they... So transferred. So after three years at Buford, transferred over to Singapore, and everybody's, oh, that's that's. I did my bit. I got to go to Singapore. And at the time, Singapore was a two-agent office. Yeah, yeah. So Steve Smith. Yeah, a lot of people remember that. I remember when it was a two-agent office. I, yeah. I pulled in on a ship there once in '92, and a Mike Gilpin a was there. Yep, Mike Gilpin was one. Of, I think one of the first ones mm -hmm. to open the office. Uh, Rich Mebs. Yep, Rich Mebs was the guy whose place I took. He got out of the uh, left NCI, NIS. It was NCIS by then, mm -hmm. NCIS to uh, open a private detective uh, business. Right? Bank. I wonder yep. what happened to Rich. I, I didn't know what happened to him. Uh, well, I, it, I, that didn't last that long. And then last I heard, he was working, I believe, for some agency as a special agent. He okay. went back to the 1811 in Guam. Oh, interesting. Area. Yeah. But Rich is a good guy. He showed me yep. the ropes. And did everything <clears throat> so yeah there are two agents and there was one agent technically assigned to the office that was in new zealand mm. uh but they closed that office uh after he when he departed they just closed because the navy used to um support operation deep freeze from christchurch new zealand and that was oh, okay. why we we had a little navy base that there was the Africa. antarctica mission right yes mm -hmm. okay <clears throat> so uh, but the Navy got out of that business and the Air National Guard took it over and okay. deployed squadrons down there because they've got the, they're the only ones that have the planes with the uh, skis on. Right. And actually, land the kids or whatever. Yeah. So that agent used to cover Australia and New Zealand. So when he left, I took over Australia and New Zealand and covered Thailand. And Steve would cover Malaysia. Uh, we split Indonesia. Uh, Look, I got to tell you, those are hard duty places. I don't, is, anybody, but, I don't think anybody would want those. You know, uh, some of us make some sacrifices for our country there. Uh, God bless <laughs> you. So Singapore was fantastic. And it was a, uh, the only thing that wasn't good was time away from home, you yeah. know, because your family's, but if you have to have your family somewhere, Singapore is a wonderful place to have it. You know, right. we, almost all the families have a maid. Uh, the, the very, very safe, safer than almost any American city, oh, uh, you know, clean, healthy best healthcare in the world you know it's all and it's a fascinating city just wonderful yeah, place it really is so i spent a lot of time deployed to thailand my major things were thailand and uh and australia mm -hmm. so the navy would uh, 
would move ships, have ships do a variety of port visits around Australia. They tried to spread the wealth. And mm -hmm. so that means, you know, unfortunately then you got to go. So <laughs> uh, a criminal investigation in every Australian state capital and a lot of number, a number of other cities there as well. So I got to oh, see more of Australia than the Australians. Thing. You probably still got a lot of good friends there too, right? I do. Well, the best Our barristers and stuff. Yeah. Well, it, it, yes, absolutely. And I had a couple of cases. Two things really kept me there a lot. Okay. One is I had a homicide of, Amer of a uh, U.S. Navy sailor in Brisbane, Australia. Okay. And I was actually <clears throat> in Brisbane at the time updating the force protection plan, but I knew the Blue Ridge was going to be there. It was off the USS Blue Ridge. And, uh, Kelly Murphy was the agent of uh, float on the Blue Ridge. Okay. She'd gone off. They, she and some of the other officers had gone off on a trip, so they didn't have an agent there. So I got this call in my hotel room that, you know, there's, they found this American sailor who's been killed. It was, I, I was actually within walking distance of the crime scene, walked oh. over to the crime scene, and I was able to work the case with the Australian detectives from the beginning. And it, they did a tremendous amount of the work. But there mm -hmm. was a tremendous amount that were Americans because a lot of the witnesses were Americans. There were two other, uh, this guy was stabbed to death. There were two other uh, American sailors who were stabbed mm -hmm. uh, pretty seriously. Mm -hmm. And so it was a nightclub. And working that case uh, and the amount of time it took to go through there and then coming back for the trials, because uh, you always try to seize enough evidence where they can't try it without you, buddy. You, <laughs> you need to come back. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I became lifelong friends with those detectives because I worked. And we'd have other cases. Brisbane was a popular place for ships to go. I'd have other cases. Now I knew everybody. Renewed every time we'd come into town, I'd renew the acquaintances and got to know them all. So it was it was great there. So did that. Uh, that one case was uh, really got to know the Brisbane Queensland police uh, detectives, et cetera. The in fact, we still go. I've been back to Australia several times just on vacation, and we go back and we stay with Australian police friends of ours that we've formed over the years. It's just fantastic. That's and then I was with the um, they had the International Forces Timor. The Indonesians had uh, pretty much left a scorched earth policy with Timor, East Timor, which had declared its independence in a referendum, mm -hmm. and it was just horrible situation. So there was an international military force that looked like it was going to invade, but essentially the Indonesians agreed to withdraw. So they came in, restored stability, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I was the first CI agent, uh, US CI agent mm -hmm. that went up to that area. And then later they sent an OSI guy in uh, to help. And later a Marine CI guy mm -hmm. came in and immediately told everybody he was in charge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that, so yeah, that was the MCI. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the Marine CIA. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and he actually called me out, I believe, in a conference later in PACOM, because you know that Chuck Howard, he just wouldn't do what I told him to do. I said, well, because I don't work for you. And those guys, those guys are funny. We were we we'd done a lot. Mm -hmm. you know, obviously, in a cat, can't tell as many CI stories as you can tell criminal stories in an open forum. Mm -hmm. We did a lot until he got there, and then. I still did a lot, but, he did. <laughs> but and it's pretty innovative stuff that uh, the commander of the force and everybody was very help, very complimentary about our reporting and what we were able to add, particularly in the days before we could get people in country 
mm-hmm. trying to debrief refugees, you know, and do those kind of things to get that that type of information. So right. it was it was great. That was in Darwin. So I did spend that was based out of, and then I went into East Timor a couple of times from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve Smith actually called me from headquarters, ordered me not to be on the first plane into Timor with the crew. Uh, so I would think I was on the second. I don't know. <laughs> second wave coming in. Yeah. Um, so did that. And then I, um, so like I said, worked a lot, number of the big exercises in Thailand, Cobra Golds, uh, other exercises, go over and support there. And we'd stay, we'd set up almost semi-permanently, you know, move in for several months during the exercise to be there to provide operations and did a lot of drug ops there too. The old, uh, stable boy tradition from the Philippines to go into those areas. We did a lot of, I, I was, um, the guy that ran the drug ops for our office. And, uh, I, I think Steve's assessed himself quite reasonably. He's a, He's a very soul of integrity looking guy. He's not, they're not going to sell him drugs. Chuck, he looked a botched you. <laughs> so we did that um, and ran drug ops uh, in support of the exercise. A very successful, I believe, most successful drug ops we ran in, in Thailand. And we also ran ops in Bali, Indonesia, which was fascinating. Uh, did some in Australia, uh, particularly in Darwin. We had a very well, David Watson, who was um, the young Dave Watson, or, no, no, older. Not uh, the old guy, the new guy, that's yeah. a classmate of mine. Now I can't hear you, Lee. If you, if you're, if or I don't know if you're muted or. Can you hear me okay now? No. No, I can't. And now. I'm not getting you here. Okay, keep. Uh, no. Keep going. Do you want me to keep talking or you want me to? Yeah, do you have me now? So Dave Watts came over and we uh, jointly worked this drug op in uh, Darwin. Very successful working with the Australians there. Uh, and so we wrote several awards for those ops. They were fun. They were, they were good. And I think we got it down to a uh, pretty effective modus operandi from that. So can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've got this USB thing. It, apparently, it, it comes unplugged. I apologize. Uh, so that, keep going. I would, this is a really good story. I'm enjoying it. People always tell me to unplug during my Zoom calls. So I'll edit that out. So we did, um, you know, but we did a lot of counterintelligence work out of Singapore as well, you know, in the various places and countries. So, uh, but for the crim side, and we, we thought it was, Steve and I thought it was funny. Because we had go, we'd win these INEOA, the old international, you know, narcotics mm-hmm. awards, and, he, and we were very proud that CI agents were getting the narcotics awards. <laughs> <laughs> That's but great. I'd also get agents to come down. I'd ask other agents in uh, from the Japan office, the Okinawa office, to come down mm-hmm. and help us out. Mm-hmm. For some reason, people were more than willing to volunteer to come to Bali for a week to buy drugs. Or I I don't know why. Yeah, we also use reservists to come over and. Uh, so Mike Cochran, uh, sure. who was a customs agent at the time, he could mm-hmm. he could buy drugs from anyone, mainly because there was nothing he wouldn't do to seal the deal. He was fantastic. Still friends of mine uh, to this day. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, so we I had great agents working with me. It was just sometimes you just put them on target and that's all you got to do. And so we had that's right. That was fantastic. Uh, the drug, the opportunities to learn and 
uh, become friends with the Singapore officials, the Australians, the Thais. It was just a, it was just a really fascinating, fascinating environment and a wonderful place. So oh, Singapore, I can yeah. So Singapore has a, a thousand stories, but the, um, but from each, from an NCIS perspective, first it was Steve and I, mm-hmm. uh, then it was Steve and I and Greg Botman. Okay. Came and we were very excited that Greg, uh, <laughs> you know, we, our office got, Oh, another, so the big thing was which countries you're going to, you're going to cover. And so I told Botman, keep your hands off Thailand and Australia. Those are mine. <laughs> 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 I have to give you one. I'll give you Indonesia. You know? <laughs> oh my gosh. You're, you're, oh, well, you know, you can come with me and so on. But, you know, <laughs> uh, and there were other places. Occasionally I go up to Malaysia because, you know, Steve would be busy. Mm-hmm. We did meet um, uh, Francis, you know, the uh, Glenn Marine. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Fat, Fat Leonard. Yeah. Fat Leonard. Yeah. And he was uh, at the time he was only in Malaysia. And I, I only met him a couple times there. So I, I don't think I'm going to be pending indictment. Yes. From anyone. <laughs> but Not good. That's, he's a lot of he's gone to you, a lot of people. You didn't, you didn't need to be an expert in cognitive psychology or body language. Thing. The guy looked crooked a mile away. Sure. And he's sorted. And so it's just. A and you dealt with a lot of husbanding agents. Uh, I did. I'm sure from all those ports you were in. Yeah. In fact, when uh, we started the op- overseas operations course, skipping ahead a number of years down at Pletsy, mm-hmm. and we decided we wanted to give course to agents before they deploy overseas and tell them about embassies and how they're structured mm-hmm. and how to think. So I <clears throat> helped design a course. We go down and teach it. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, a line from my course was, you know, I was explaining what husbanding agents are. And mm-hmm. this is well before any of the, you know, the Fat Leonard stories came out or things like that. Mm-hmm. Husbanding agents, they're always corrupt. <laughs> if it's, <laughs> you can go focus on them. I'm sure you can make a case. But yeah. always so my lesson to the students was always keep your arms distance. Yeah. I'll try to do everything for you. You know, yeah. so you can get your own phone. That's better. You get your own translator. That's better. Yeah. You know, yeah. than trying to always go through the husbanding agents because <clears throat> some of them are, and some of them were quite vicious. I knew there were, you know, like behind the scenes things that go on as to who was going to get, but we had to separate at the time, Fat Leonard ultimately got all the contracts, but because the, uh, the Navy went to a one company model, I think. At the time we had a separate husbanding agent in Thailand. We had one for Australia, you know, mm-hmm. we had different or, or several for Australia. So there was, but it, I wonder if that was the, it seems to me that's the real problem there when you have one stop shopping like that and, they, and, and the corruption just can, begins from there, I suppose. Yeah, I, I honestly think that's not a good, it may make a, a sense from a Lean Six Sigma efficiency model. <laughs> a, yeah, exactly. You know, power corrupts an absolute power or a monopolistic power mm-hmm. always corrupts absolutely. So, sure. you know, you have one person and the Navy's requirements are not so bizarre. They think they are, but they're not. There's yeah. husbanding agents that deal with ships all the time. Yeah. You know, you can, you know, I, I can tell you what I need. I need this. So we need, you know, Yep. Fresh fruit and vegetables. We need, you know, Liberty boats. We yep. need this. We need mm-hmm. that. Right. You know, and uh, <clears throat> so I, I do think that that was a problem. I didn't have, and each of them were quirky. There was one over in Thailand that, you know, had to catch him before five o'clock because by 5.01 p.m. he was completely schnockered. Wow. <laughs> so, 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 <laughs> oh, you my know? goodness gracious. But he used to, he used to work 
for the CIA back yeah. in the day. You know, oh, really? Run, run Martin Yards in uh, in uh, yeah, he's got his own podcast out here, and I think it's going to get him in trouble in this case. This case is a trial right now. Yeah, because I think the defense attorney is going to use that against him. It should be an interesting tactic if they do use it because he's he comes across in that podcast and the jury's going to see that as a complete freaking jerk. And uh, I hope that they I, I expect that they'll use it. I Unfortunately, my sister-in-law, who is a graduate of the Naval Academy as well, her classmate is uh, one of the um, one of the defendants in this case. Mm-hmm. and former admiral and um and so he, he's he really he was a navy intel guy so i'm not sure what they're it's going to be a four-month trial be a long trial yeah was that admiral loveless yes bruce loveless yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it's it's unfortunate but uh and, he, and they went and had dinner with him the other night uh, along with uh, another admiral and it was just a you know an in- interesting conversation you know i the way that guy does business, it just seems like a lot of husband agents we've all seen. He, he's he's a wheeler and a dealer, and you got to, you know, like you said, you got to keep yourself in an arm's reach between those guys because next thing you know, you're going to be you'll be getting free gifts from somewhere, and you don't know it's from him. And he's well, taking notes, and that he's right. who he's giving stuff to. Absolutely, and it's like Ron Struble used to do. He used to come over quite a bit and help us in the exercises, and I'll run the exercises in Thailand and mm-hmm. uh, deploy when. I forgot about the whole special contingency group thing. So when that stood up, sure. you know, uh, I volunteered because I've been SCG. In yeah, yeah, SCG and went through that training. So that's how I got into the initial Thai uh, exercise support, you know, as you mm-hmm. go over to the areas. Uh, and Ron was run, you know, helped uh, work with me on that. And mm-hmm. in fact, was running exercises before I got over there. And then we would jointly do it. And then we practiced turn, trading back and forth in all this. Uh, but Ron and I used to have many a conversation in, in, about the challenges of operating in the Far East because he was stationed up in um, uh, Iwakuni. He'd been in Yokosuka. You know, he spoke Japanese. And you know, it was just, we we're both big fans of Asia. We love love the Asian world. But you you cannot send. We used to say I, my phrase was you should not send non-pub qualified agents <laughs> <laughs> to Westpac. You know, it is, you know, That's you true. Need, that you is need true. People, <laughs> you need people who have a, some maturity. Because I can't tell you the number of times Ron and I would be together with a group of, you know, Marine <laughs> officers, CID, CI guys or something, and all of a sudden we're by ourselves. I said, yeah, this this will really look good in our memoirs, Ron. You and I both have our plan. Off on the town, you know. But we, we uh, you just had to have that disciplined approach mm-hmm. to that. I'm not saying not enjoy it because it was fantastic, but I'm just saying you just the husbanding agents one because there's lots of temptation on offer. Sure. And I feel sorry for a lot of the Navy guys because there was a lot of um, way. This is the way they did business. Mm-hmm. so if the, you take over a job and it's well it's customary for this guy to buy you dinner and if you don't accept he's mm-hmm. you know he's gonna lose face mm-hmm. or you know it's gonna they have, there are a lot of excuses to allow that slippery soap and there's a lot of people who think because they're a senior officer they're anointed and not appointed so they yeah. believe that they deserve some of these you know yeah. that's unfortunate that's true it is and it's i think from the navy's perspective if you think about tailhook because mm-hmm. the tailhook happened when I was, I was a Pletsy. 
mm -hmm. uh, learning NCIS. And I was there when um, the victim picked out her attacker in a lineup, which mm -hmm. is a story in itself at Lejeune. And they yeah, did sure. the lineup at Lejeune uh, because it was the, the, there was the attacker had a kind of a unique look. It was a Marine officer. Mm -hmm. uh, that it solved her, but uh, the only place it was the best lineup I've ever seen legally because almost everybody in the lineup you had you had thousands of Marines to choose from. They found people that looked very much like him. But she, um, Beth Iorio was a case agent yep. on that. Yeah, I want to and talk to Beth about Tella because she's got some great stories about the experiences of conducting interrogations and Admiral calling her in the interrogation room. Oh yeah, it was absolutely ridiculous what he said, and you know, yeah. and. and and that that's could be a whole nother podcast in in that regard. Okay. Oh, absolutely. But she will, she may may not may not remember this, but so they brought she brought the uh, the victim mm -hmm. to uh, uh, to the mm -hmm. NCS office. We did the uh, they were doing the lineup, and mm -hmm. they went came and got me because the trial counsel refused to be there, and so there was a defense lawyer there. And said, Chuck, your lawyer, can you come in and sit and watch, you know, just hang out? And so I'm there with Beth and the victim and, you know, the defense lawyer. And the victim says, hey, do you, do you see that? And I look, the defense lawyer's got a little pocket recorder and he's trying to tape it. So I said, hey, you, <laughs> you know, so we took his recorder away because we're trying to tape the, the lineup. And he also tried to, um, but she picked out that guy twice and she took a second and the defense attorney was going, Oh, you know, you, you're not really sure. I said, I'm absolutely sure, but I know how important this is. I want to make sure <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> wow. was that Coughlin that was uh, doing the, yeah, doing that, the, wow. Coughlin, I think it was Paula. Was it, yeah, yeah. Paula Coughlin. Yeah. yeah. And um, she picked the guy out, you know, boom. Uh, mm. And that, so, and he had, I think he had some kind of uh, brain cancer, some some illness that stopped mm -hmm. him from getting completely uh, all the punishment he deserved from that uh, event. But the one reason I brought up Tailhook is because I think that the uh, Fat Leonard's era was mm -hmm. having a horrible effect on the Navy officer corps, sort of like Tailhook had on the aviation community. Sure. You know, good things that came out of Tailhook. One, we got a civilian director. Mm -hmm. You know, I said I would say it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to the organization. It really was. And it pointed out the difficulties mm -hmm. of trying to investigate in a military context when your boss is military. Yeah. And I've seen and, and I've done a lot of joint environment, both of you and I've been in Iraq. Mm -hmm. you, you've been over a lot of places. I've been in a lot of joint areas with OSI and CID. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and I can tell you they're good people, excellent yep. people. But as organizationally, it's dysfunctional to a certain extent because they are not truly independent. They you know, have to deal with um, with military influence. It's just the nature of the beast. Yep. Whereas a civilian, you know, hey, right. you know, it just doesn't. And um, it's not like we, everything's great because we still have to deal with military lawyers, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. But I think that the, the NCIS construct and now Army CID is recognizing that, you know, and there is, is, is the best construct there is to having absolutely independent uh, things. We don't have yeah, a man, you know, right. down, there are downsides. You don't have the manpower like OSI does. Mm -hmm. So you can, you know, you, you, well, we need 20 more sergeants. Okay, <laughs> we got them. That case for 1.5 special agents. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It, uh, and there's, 
there's something to be said about having young, enthusiastic agents out there, you know, working. Mm -hmm. But having the expertise you bring to the table with NCIS is, yep. is just irreplaceable. And it sets your investigative standards high. And, I, and, you, and you know, you have, I used to laugh at U.S. attorneys' offices that think that they, you know, oh, we, we do very tough prosecutions. I said, that may be true, but mm -hmm. you have very good investigators. You're prosecuting off an FBI report or an NCIS report. Mm -hmm. you, you know, I don't not uh, disrespecting any of my local and state police agencies, mm -hmm. but the level of reporting and quality of evidence and et cetera that you get mm -hmm. varies dramatically than it, <laughs> from the federal really side. So, interesting. so, you you know, and so you have to be more creative in your lawyering sometimes to make up the gaps in that. In that interesting. Um, but yeah, so so from. Uh, from Singapore, I transferred back, uh, came back to headquarters. Now, Chuck, I, before before we go from yeah. Singapore to headquarters, you were uh, you were you were uh, the agent of the year on that. Was that the Singapore assignment that got you the agent of the year? The yes. uh, the operation. Yes. I didn't okay. get the award till I got, came back to headquarters, but it, it was shortly after I got back. And uh, but yes, they. Um, I'm very fortunate to be recognized as uh, mm -hmm. special agent, award and it was. Uh, in this CI FCI arena, mm -hmm. uh, so I can't go. The damn good operation, that's for sure. A lot of those those kind of things, but it was a uh, yes, and I think uh, uh, very appreciative of that, and very and mm -hmm. I, I think that's the of the been lucky enough to get a number of awards in my life, and but that that I'm the most proud. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was great. So um, so I got that. Came back to headquarters. I've been selected to be an SSA, but it hadn't hadn't moved into an SSA slot yet. Mm -hmm. So I was in. Um, came back to be uh, assigned to headquarters, Code Twenty Two, the Counterintelligence Directorate, and I was assigned to be the Middle East Desk Officer. Okay. Middle East Europe Desk Officer. Now I figured this would be a quiet job. <laughs> you know, you know, so, be careful you know, what you say it's about you know, to happen now i'm got you know i could spend time with the family everything is great i'm back from overseas uh and so i don't remember how soon it was but uss cole was attacked mm -hmm. you know within a month or so of my arrival there i checked aboard with mark fallon came in yep. as a new uh dad uh -huh. uh, the you know overseas uh, directorate there, and those man who did not like counterintelligence. Oh no, it was his first counterintelligence. I, I always tell Mark, you know, I, I helped you spell the word. <laughs> <laughs> but Mark's great, love him. Yeah, he's good people. And uh, I, we fortunately had some great analysts. Erica mm -hmm. Day, fantastic analyst. Um, Doug, and a whole no number. So. Uh, I think I took it took the desk over from Mark Russ, a name that probably pops up. <laughs> and Mark was very thorough in his his turnover, very happy to be moving on <laughs> doing things. I can imagine. So, oh yeah, Mark's a great guy. So yeah. he had a good turnover. He had he settled in, and then boom, USS Cole was attacked. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> I became the supervisor uh, under Mark. Mark was in charge of the overall skip ahead, the overall USS Cole task force. I was the mm -hmm. duty the NCIS supervisor. Mm -hmm. it, um, I was calling and directing people, you know, or asking people, you know, and your wife included, you mm -hmm. know, to you know, deploy to, uh, to Yemen. Mm -hmm. Got 
bought, uh, found Bob McFadden somewhere in California, told him he had to get to Yemen. I don't know how he did it, but it, I'm sure it wasn't using DOD travel. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> his flights. But that little sucker got there. He's a fantastic guy. And Bob yeah. and I had been roommates in Fletzy. So oh, okay. you know, we knew each other well. <laughs> Mike, Mike Marks. Um, yeah. Mike Marks and I had actually gone, been the first two agents to go to a post-blast investigators course. Oh, wow. Uh, Mark, Mike, because he used to be a, a bomb tech and understood mm -hmm. those kind of things well, me because I was stationed in South Car in Paris Island in Georgia, which was in, somewhere in our AOR, was going to have the Olympics. So <laughs> thoughts came up. Hey, learn about post blast just in case somebody blows up the Olympics. <laughs> so um, Mike and I spent a great couple weeks down there at ATS post blast school together. So knew Mike well. Assigned, uh, you know, called him, directing Mike Dorsey to come down. Brought you know, leveraging the people. And the advantage of NCIS and our flexibility as an agency, we were able to get people down on deck very, very rapidly. Yeah. yeah. And the right people. Mm -hmm. It's better to have one Mike Marks there than 20 SWAT team guys or something. You know, you, right. know, you, you, need, to, you need to have right. that. So the whole coal piece was long, devolved. That became our primary focus uh, doing the coal uh, investigation, liaisoning with the FBI, uh, coordinating with the FBI. And, uh, it was, it was great. So that, there's a hundred stories out of the coal, but just to tell you, um, one that I remember is later on after we, you know, done the major investigative steps and, and coordinated things, uh, the head general from CENTCOM was coming into DC and he was going to get a brief on the USS Cole. Right. And Louis Free from the, F the FBI director was going to deliver the FBI side. So I don't know how this happened, but Chuck, you need to go over to FBI headquarters and brief the Cole. And somebody just said, oh, okay. Because <laughs> <You know, laughs> I've been, you know, so, so I had grabbed my slides or whatever, coming. Uh, Go over and I walk in and there's Louis Free sitting there. I don't think they knew it was going to be the director. The FBI was going to give the brief personally to the general. So the room is full of FBI SESs. Oh you know, just a ton of executives. Nobody from NCS but me. There's a table. General Franks, I think it was, was on one side of the table. Free moves to sit down. There's, you know, where you sit in these headquarters executive things is, you know, people probably are died fighting over these roles so if it isn't assigned it, it's yeah, it, it, i, I can yeah, see the melee i said you know hey i'm the senior ncis rep only ncis rep so <laughs> I, I run in while they're still trouble fighting over who's going to sit next to louis i sit down next to him <clears throat> the general chuck howard ncis and again it's when i don't work for any of these people <laughs> so uh, i was impressed Louis Free, without notes, gave a pretty good brief on the coal. And uh, now I knew my stuff because I've been living it. Sure. You know, I think the director of the FBI probably has other investigations going on. He probably in this, You know, oh, so <clears throat> he did a really good job. He was more than courteous. All of his guys are like looking daggers at me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, doing my thing. <laughs> um, yes, sir. Yes, I, I, I concur with the FBI director. <laughs> 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 you 
<laughs> our analysis is blah, blah. <laughs> so I do that. I come back to headquarters and uh, I hear this. Uh, somebody, I go up to 22 spaces and they say, you got to go down to the front office. I want to hear how the brief went. So I go, great. And Joe Heffron, Dave Brand are there. Mm-hmm. And Joe Heffron comes over. Who, who was at the brief? I said, Louis Free. He goes, oh, Louis Free, you know, you know, and of course, Joe being the political, where'd you sit? I said, at the table right next to him, Mr. Heffron. And he runs into Dave Brandt, Chuck's out at the table, Chuck's out at the table. Now ask me, <laughs> I answer any questions. <laughs> I got to sit at the table. So I, I guess I succeeded in my uh, NCIS representation role. Great. That's yeah. great. That, that, that would have throw a medal on your chest. Be like, way to go, way to jump in there. I have to wear it where I sit. <laughs> that's great story yeah so that that was um that was a uh, fun aspect of, of that very very tragic event and so many people again so many people did so much on that inclu- mm-hmm. including kathy and mm-hmm. you know dealing with bodies mike there's people that you know were much who had much bigger things to worry about than where to sit at a table <laughs> trying sure. to solve the case but I think what is remarkable, two things were remarkable allowed us to truly do that as a joint investigation. One was the, uh, the quality of our Arabic speakers mm-hmm. and the experts we could bring to the table quickly. But the fact right. that we had people like Kathy who were forensically qualified and could be there you know, fairly soon. And we were a small, agile organization that mm-hmm. could piggyback off the military mm-hmm. uh, for flights and things like that. We were able to get the right people there. But the quality of our Middle East experts, Bob McFadden, fantastic Arabic speaker, Ali Soufan from the FBI, fantastic. But mm-hmm. you, once, you, once you start going down that list, the FBI didn't have that many more than we had. <laughs> so, sure. you know, so yeah. that way we were in every major interview, every major interrogation, dealing uh, every crime scene had mm-hmm. NCIS representation and oftentimes lead. So it was, it was good. The other funny story last one I would say is, I was at a meeting over the FBI, SIOC, or whatever the hell they call it, the command center. It looks like something out of Space Force. And, <laughs> and so we're, <laughs> we're, we're there. And, um, you know, and this FBI executive is going, you know, I can't believe the ambassador won't let our, the, you know, they, they would only let a certain number of FBI agents off the tarmac into Yemen. There's a number that they that said, they sent 100 people. We sent like 15 initially. Yeah. They sent 100. Half of them were SWAT guys, you know, or HRT guys. They sure. call them, you know, the, the trigger pullers for their security, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the FBI executive, Chuck, you're, you're NCIS, right? Yes, sir. He said, I don't understand it. The ambassador won't let our people off the tarmac. You guys operate in foreign countries all the time. You know, don't you have trained professionals to provide security for you? Say, yes, sir, we do. We call them the Marine Corps. We don't need it, really need an HRT. We, that's, that's why we have you know, the, the military there to do things. Oh, oh, oh. You know, so, so, so they, they um, didn't enjoy their time there. But it was our relationships with the embassy and the State mm-hmm. Department, both in D.C. and locally, you mm-hmm. know, preserve much better relations in the Bureau. Uh, and I think part of that is symptomatic of the fact that yourself, me, most NCIS agents have been with us for a career. We serve a lot overseas and a lot yeah, of go to a lot of places, had learned to deal with things and learn not to you can't think too highly of yourself because you can be mm-hmm. the best agent in the world. The country team could kick your butt out. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's <laughs> you know? true. 
And I may be an independent civilian, but if the CEO of the carrier wants me off his ship, he's going to help me off the ships. <laughs> You're gone. <laughs> so it's much better to be, um, you catch more flies with honey. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. I agree with that, uh, that's, that strategy completely. Yeah. So I stayed at, um, at headquarters uh, <clears throat> quite a while. I um, became chief of the Overseas Counterterrorism Division there. When they uh, then they did the split into the CTD mm-hmm. and CI, you know, was there for that, and it's uh, I kind of stayed on the counterintelligence side of that at headquarters bureaucratically. Was mm-hmm. uh, and that was that was some tough times because there was some you know personality conflicts and sure. things in that. But overall, <clears throat> I think rolling it back into a national security model, sort of like the bureau is, which is my understanding the way to do it today, is much better. But yeah. <clears throat> we had to get there, you know, and work through it. And look, because there were a lot of traditional counterintelligence people who didn't really buy into the terrorism mission, you know, yeah. and that's, you know, you had to overcome that. Yeah. You know, it's not all about double agents. It's all about, you know, this. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we were we were struggling for years after the Soviet Union, uh, you know, went kaput and it was like trying to find the enemy, you know. And then, right. of course, these terrorists, con- I'm, I'm sure there were conversations at headquarters like going, Oh, this is a counterintelligence matter. No, this is a counterterrorism matter. So it's like okay. you're going back and forth. Oh, yeah. Being a fly on the wall or there and watching go back and forth is, yeah, it is. But NCS is a small organization too. So usually there was yep. ways around and you could work. You find a way. And, yeah, to work through it. But that's that's the reason the SCG came into fruition, mm-hmm. I believe. But once the wall went down, the traditional counterintelligence mission was changing. Mm-hmm. And they looked at military support became a new focus area because you don't want to lose billets. You want to, you know, you know, and you, oh, we're doing support now and exercises and things. Sure. Well, did we know that that proved the worth of a civilian organization, even within a military operation? Mm-hmm. Because I don't know, when you and I first came on board, they would say, oh, well, we keep the Marine CID guys because mm-hmm. they'll go into the combat area. Right. And the reality is you and I have both been in combat areas. We do. Right. <laughs> there's no front lines in some of these things. So That's there's right. more dangerous situations <laughs> and less dangerous situations. You see mm-hmm. train to try to adapt to that. Um but it's easier to pick up those combat survival, priority combat survival skills than it is to train someone to be a good investigator. Right. That takes years. And that, you know, so bringing that investigative talent means it is, a, is a, a huge force that can be leveraged, I think, in those those cases. Right. So, right. so I was at headquarters, went from there to um, uh, down to. Southeast field office. Uh, I got promoted to 14, went down to be an ASAC mm-hmm. down there. Uh, I actually got promoted to 14, was overseas counterterrorism division, uh, then went down to be an ASAC. You remember the Southeast field office had a little uh, removal of leadership? Yes. So you followed that that uh, group that got removed, yes. right? Yes. So, so Carol Kiskart went down to be the new SAC, mm-hmm. and I went down to be one of the new eight SACs. So that was a challenging okay. thing. You know, you're coming in, but you make it work. And sure. then uh, moved my family down there. Uh, thought that that would be great. And then six months later, NCIS comes back. Okay, we're going to promote you to 15 now. And we want you to come back up and take over the MTAC. And I go, uh, 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 all right. So I, my family and kids stayed there for six months. I came back, moved to my parents' old house in Dundalk uh, prior to Solomon and just stayed there and commuted to D.C. and did that. And that was kind of tough. Yeah, I, I can imagine. that's a tough drive yeah. every day. Yeah. So we um, 
you know, came back to take over the MTAC from Mike Dorsey, who, you know, had, uh, yeah, Mike transitioned the ATAC into the MTAC mm -hmm. and, and that, uh, MTAC meaning multi-threat alert center. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we did, uh, that was important because you were sort of by default in charge of NCIS's intelligence effort, not counterintelligence mm -hmm. effort, but intelligence effort, because mm -hmm. you were working, you know, the asymmetric threat, mm -hmm. trying to put, so it's just not terrorism, the old ATAC, the MTAC grew out of the ATAC, the Anti-Terrorism Alert Center, which mm -hmm. was on the Navy. That's what we had with the coal. There was mm -hmm. a terrorism related watch, force protection related watch. Right. So the MTAC developed in the model, and I, I think I did my best to enhance and move it forward, was to be a full, all-source, asymmetric threat. So I'm not telling you when the Russian Navy is going to attack, but I can tell you that there's a threat from terrorists, from criminals, mm -hmm. you know, espionage threat, civil disturbances, anything that's not traditional military intelligence, how many tanks, how many planes, how many ships, uh, and building that up, which ultimately uh, became, code, you know, uh, it's the department, the directorate of intelligence within NCIS. So I went from there to be trying to keep the timing here. So I went to MTAC, went over uh, while I was uh, after doing that for a while. There came up for Iraq. I think we're better coming up to this. So the uh, I volunteered. They said, "Oh, we're going to when NCIS is finally going to put some 15s into Iraq." So I, I volunteered to be that and became the first 15 actually to deploy for a tour over to Iraq. Came and down and did the training too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I felt like the old guy at the, uh, <laughs> and, that, and that training could yeah. be a little rough. I mean, it could be a little oh, yeah. tough. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, uh, it was good. So, uh, okay. it was good training. We went through the high risk training operations program mm -hmm. and ended up deploying over to Iraq. Uh, to be the first NCIS director of the SCID, Strategic mm -hmm. Counterintelligence Directorate, which right. years later morphed into a joint counterintelligence unit and, and then ultimately disappeared. But the, uh, uh, <laughs> as they all do. As they all do. But at the time, the, it, the intent was to have all serious counterintelligence matter, counterterrorism matters that were handled by the military to be handled by the SCID, the Strategic Counterintelligence Directorate. Mm -hmm. And so... I came over to that. I relieved an army 15 mm -hmm. and I was subsequently relieved by an air force colonel. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you were with me there. Uh, mm -hmm. I, we had three major operating locations, Baghdad, um, Basra in the South and Erbil in the North. And we did the full spectrum of counterintelligence and security operations in country. And I think we were very successful at it. Right. And so much so that the, uh, and I, my focus maybe was a little different than Colonel Ziegler, who finally each director puts his own stamp on things, mm -hmm. but I tried to really to hit all the, and of course I have to talk around a lot of this, but all the, all the sure. major requirements, so much so that General Zayner, <clears throat> uh, shortly before my departure, he was the G2, the senior intelligence officer in theater mm -hmm. for, the, for the multinational force and for the U.S. Army. And he was my boss essentially mm -hmm. there. And he said that our unit was his most reliable source of intelligence. 
Mm. And considering he said that to me in front of the DIA commander, <laughs> you know, I thought that was pretty, <laughs> pretty good. Not good. <laughs> yeah, that guy's like, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> we had our we had our issues with DIA there, that's for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but it was because the agents like you yeah. and going out and working in joint teams. When I when I hit deck over there, we just had a skid patrol uh, that been that's hit right. by an IED. Mm-hmm. Several casualties, including uh, two KIA, mm-hmm. uh, and that had a significant morale effect on the unit and the operations there. And so, I found, I think I was able to be successful to the extent I was. Mm-hmm. But I was drawing on everything I had, including my military background. So I knew enough mm-hmm. about the military, but enjoyed being a civilian. There's no way I could have accomplished <laughs> what I had as a Navy captain, right. say assigned to that. But being a civilian, it gives you more flexibility. But I knew enough about the military for to work the morale issues of the combat patrols to increase our uh, operational security, our operational planning to ensure that we were not going out uh, for fruitless or reckless missions, but to Mm -hmm. keep doing missions. Because the reaction was all of those. We had people that would go out, became adrenaline junkies because one of their patrols was hit. So they wanted to go out in the red zone all the time for not very good reasons. We had people that didn't want to go out the red zone at all. Mm-hmm. We had people, you know, in, uh, in between, you know, we have a breakdown in military discipline amongst the uniform members, mm-hmm. you know, I'm through many details, but you know what I'm speaking sure. of, you yeah. know, and so having to help them through that process without trying to call an army IG or somebody to you know, wreck people's careers. I've gone, those people have gone on to have very successful careers. And I think because we provide an environment where they could heal, get back mm-hmm. to doing what they're supposed to be doing and move forward. So I think that that was a, it was a great operation. Well, I think that assignment was one of my highlights of my career. Uh, it was, uh, you gave me an opportunity to uh, do an interesting operation that I think turned out to do uh, provide a lot of good information, good intelligence. And uh, it was one of the uh, most unique things that I ever did. And I still had two tours to go in Iraq. And I would say that that first tour working for you as the director of SCID was truly one of the i have some great memories of of that time it was a good time great had, to hear. yeah great to hear. i i enjoyed working for you and and i worked for uh, two other guys uh, uh, a colonel and an army civilian the army civilian was a good guy to work for and the uh, the colonel mm, not so much but <laughs> it all worked out in the end so well you may you know the the advantage and we played our law enforcement role when it helped uh, two quick non-operational stories, but when you can appreciate, you remember we had some uh, female translators. Yes, work, and they were coming through the base every day. And they, we, when I first got there, we were in villas out in town, yep. which was great from a uh, clandestine aspect, but was not great from a security aspect. And they weren't reinforced buildings, but the White House, the villa that I was uh, personally in. Mm-hmm. It was our major headquarters. Was the last place that Saddam Hussein had a press conference before. Is that day. right? I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, in the basement there was where he did his last press conference for TV before wow. he uh, took off. So it had historic uh, memories. Certainly, it was an interesting place. But it was the security situation was rapidly deteriorating, and it was time for us to move to a more secure location. Mm-hmm. Moved all of our most of our assets. In Baghdad into FOB, Bob Union 3, a Ford operating base. <clears throat> right. And 
we were in the former uh, Bath Party headquarters, That's which right. is a huge building that had survived a JDAM strike during the war. Still had a big hole <laughs> in the middle of it, but the building still stood. So yeah. it was a safe place for us to operate from. The downside was we were working around the army. Yeah. And they were challenging. And you could <laughs> say the least. So we had these few. Uh, so the soldiers were all. We, our base commander in our particular fob was a real pain in the butt. And yeah. his, so he had bad, very bad morale with his troops. So they were they all had attitudes. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and I tried to bond with him. And he was a field artillery guy. So, oh, I went to field artillery school, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> you know you're a civilian. All you are is a liability. <laughs> all right. So wow. the, um, our female translators were coming through because uh, they lived out uh, outside the fob. <clears throat> and the guards were being very sexually harassing to them as they were coming through, making them turn around five times to check for weapons and things like that. It was just, it was a very um, humiliating experience. And they came back to us in tears uh, one time. And I, you know, I said, what's, what's the matter? And they described the problem to me. Mm-hmm. So I talked, I called the Colonel and said, listen, this is, this is unacceptable. You know, well, your people have to comply with security regulations just like anyone else does. I said, that's fine. Just want to let you know I'll start my initiating my investigation. I said, what investigation? <clears throat> so I said, I'm initiating. I, I mean, I know this. I'm a federal law enforcement officer, Colonel. I can initiate an investigation anytime I want. And I'm going to send my men down to start taking statements from your gate guards. Regarding right. this. I was one of those guys. Yeah. And I went down and I picked out the guys who were NCIS and OSI because you yep. yep. could act, walk the walk of a criminal investigator. I said, go down, start taking statements. And... Um, it was it was a classic moment of awareness yeah. <laughs> it was like yeah. what you people are actually federal agents too right mm-hmm. and it worked thank god because i'm not sure i could charge anybody with sexual harassment it wasn't sexual assault. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you can now <laughs> he didn't know that oh yeah you can now he didn't know that he didn't know it wasn't a federal <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> we got wow call i said this is what no problems again from that uh that crowd interesting good to have that crim hat when you need it but one thing i really appreciate about ncsl agents in general but you in particularly because you you embody this you Mm -hmm. have a flex you know you're flexible you're at Mm -hmm. you know you do you're professional but you'll do Mm -hmm. the you do the job so i walked in and said lee this is what's boom 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 Yes, sir. Boom. Grab a notepad. You're, you know, no, no back. Oh, why do we have to do? No. Swear yeah. <laughs> yeah. them to it and everything. Make them sure they scared the shit out of them. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, wait, Scott Pierce with the the OSI. Scott Pierce was my partner in many ways. Scott and I enjoyed doing that because it was our moment to get in the face of those guys and let them know that they're now on they're they're being observed on everything right. they do, and it did. It straightened up quickly. Yeah, that colonel was continued to be a, a, a problem. We had one other incident, just kind of funny. As you know, we had an Army National Guard unit that, uh, it, so this battalion had deployed initially from Kansas, and then and the end of my tour, it transitioned to a Texas unit. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had called through this entire infantry battalion and, p- and selected three platoons. One mm-hmm. went to escort VIPs, one went to support DIA, and one went to support us. Mm-hmm. You know, so they were the best and the brightest, I guess they could they could come up with. 
-hmm. And they went to Blackwater, they put them through Blackwater's training program. So they were trained in running PSDs and in the security operations. And that way we could, if we had to send an agent out, we didn't have to send all of our agents out to protect the one agent. We had mm -hmm. the security uh, right. vigils and we allowed them to dress down, uh, dress civilian clothes. So uh, they defaulted to a, it looked like a biker gang mm -hmm. <laughs> on, on its way to- uh, <laughs> They really did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like so, so you know, it is what it is, but you can't, <laughs> you know, so, so they're longer beards than most, you know, uh, religious figures I've seen. So they're, they're, they're all dressed <laughs> in, um, <clears throat> so this drives the regular soldiers crazy, so they're jealous of them. Yeah. And the big thing that I continue to argue with was this colonel didn't want us to have any live rounds in our weapons. And I tried to explain to him that we had a, we had an order that allowed federal agents to do that. Well, your mm -hmm. people aren't federal agents, so the security guys had to download when they came in and out of the base. It was so yeah. they came in, there was unit uh, patrol came back, one of our patrols, they're downloading, soldier starts talking to soldier, boom, boom, it's pretty soon you got a little fisticuffs and we got a little mini riot at the front gate between our guys and the- <laughs> I remember the that, I forgot guys. about that. And our guys were winning. So the Colonel calls me up and says, I'm gonna ban your secure, your, your people from my base, your security unit from my base, which he, you know, obviously was not an operationally feasible thing to do because we had to have them there to operate. Mm -hmm. I said, well, again, all right, then I'm going to start an investigation because I believe my people were assaulted. <laughs> and this is after the, <laughs> you know, I'm not bluffing. So before I send Lee and Scott down to start arresting people for assault on our, on our poor beloved biker gang guys. <laughs> Oh my God! Oh, we're winning. You know, so, so, <laughs> you know, but you know they—they were obviously acting in self-defense, and so I said, or you know, before I start arresting Colonel, and then we can do a prisoner exchange, and I can give you back your gate cards, and you can give me back my I'll—I'll <laughs> I'll read them the riot act. But, you know, so that got—we put the, the mini riot of the Fob Union Three to bed with that. I remember. Uh, I forgot about that. Oh my gosh, well, that's so funny. Yeah. That was funny. There's a little incidents. You know, what we we're doing was very important. Mm -hmm. but, you know, these people were re uh, reacting to the stress differently. Yeah. And, you know, as a historian, you know, I was a history major in college. Mm -hmm. And I, always, I won't give myself a real historian, but I've always had a lifelong interest in history. And I read about World War II and units there. Mm -hmm. and, and they had their problems with law of war, violations there, too. Uh, but one difference is they didn't have to deal with general order number one. Yeah, it's true. You got Eisenhower cracking champagne when they win a battle. You got, you know. <laughs> yeah, Nimitz is drinking gin and tonics every afternoon. Yeah, Winston Churchill was drunk the entire war. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm not advocating, you know, massive use of alcohol, particularly with, you know, green troops, you're not yep. used to carrying firearms. It's different than C8. We have enough trouble with accidental discharges with agents, you know, mm -hmm. but with people who are not used to carrying a loaded weapon around, that is a problem. But that, that slavish attention to general order number one, and mm -hmm. for those who don't know, general order number one provide, uh, prohibits anything fun in a combat area. But the one that particularly drives people crazy is the, the no, no fun alcohol. rule. That's right. Yeah. So there was an exception to general order number one for counterintelligence activities conducted on behest of the intelligence and counterintelligence activities conducted at behest of the chief of station. Mm -hmm. So because I liaison completely, almost daily with the chief of station, I figured that covered the skit. 
So, <laughs> so, so uh, you know, it, not that we had reckless use of it, but, you know, just particularly for our applying the generals, the Iraqi generals with mm -hmm. whiskey or doing all the things we do, you know, I wanted to make sure we were covered in that regard. Sure. But uh, that, when uh, my successor got there, he said, what, you know, what's your future general? I don't know. I told him about this frag order. I said, oh, I called a lawyer friend of mine. He said, that won't hold up. He said, he's right. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> you know, well, what do you want to say? Because I'm an ask forgiveness, not permission kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, those, uh, I will say those parties, we, I thought we did some great work in those parties. We, you know, we had a lot of good cooperation. We had, we gathered a lot of good information and, and you know what? It was a, uh, it was a good uh, morale building uh, moment for every, every Saturday that we had them. Yeah. And with all the stresses that we had to deal with, that yep. was the, the least of things. If you remember one of our analysts, contract analysts was a uh, uh, gourmet chef. So he would cook. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. That's right. He would make the, the food. He makes dinners and you know and things. So you gotta you gotta leverage people's talents and skills. That's, so after did a good job at that. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we all I think we all did. I think that was a successful tour. I'm very proud of you and everybody else that got to work with over there. That was fantastic. And I've run into several of our army, uh, JT from the army and others, mm -hmm. and you know have been very complimentary of working mm -hmm. with us and NCIS and stuff. So and the and OSI obviously. So it's all uh a very positive experience so and anyway came back from uh iraq came back to the mtac briefly and then i was named the special agent in charge of the washington field office i went over to do that i enjoy, that was one of my most enjoyable tours as well um i just love being a sack i would have stayed being a sack the rest of my career yeah. if you could but it's a great job a lot of people want to be <laughs> Of DC. So, <laughs> so really enjoyed that. Really enjoyed working uh, and working with young agents, working, you know, trying to, to mentor, to, uh, to deal with commands, dealing with the, uh, other law enforcement agencies, representing mm -hmm. our agency. Um, I don't know if you remember, George, if you've ever been around DC, uh, DCWA, the Washington Field Office, we had an investigator from a retired MPD investigator, George Taylor. Uh, yeah, I remember there. George really well. In fact, I got yeah. to work with George uh, a little bit before he passed. No, he's that oh, investigator. Is that the other guy? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I knew yeah. it too. George, George is still here. And in okay. fact, George works for me now. He's Is that right? Yeah, he's a special agent in my office here. Oh, man. So uh, he, he, uh, he must have forgotten all those bad times at D.C., so he took a job. He, <laughs> and he's doing a fantastic job, as always. And everybody goes, He's so good with people. I say that's because you've never met real good. You know, George is great with people, but sure. good investigators are good with people. You know, and it's just it's a uh, thing. So he's there. So DCWA, we had uh, a number of good cases, I guess, out of there. It was great. A lot of uh, very active fraud program, very uh, active CI, more of the CI aspect of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and crime down in PAX and Quantico added, you know, you always had fun, but I had great people. In each office, Heather working down in Quant, you know, as the SSA down in Quantico yeah, was fantastic. Yeah, um, Kate Smith working yep. with you know as, um, SSA and then later in ASAC. You know, it just it was just a great group of people. But there's two cases I can think of there that were particularly, I guess, newsworthy <clears throat> or would have been newsworthy if the news were aware of it uh, at the time. Uh, one was the invest we as NCIS were brought into an investigation at a national level 
of the United States Air Force. And the way that that happened was in 2000, just to set the stage, in 2007, the Air Force had a very embarrassing incident with nuclear weapons. I believe they had six missiles that were supposed to be fitted with dummy warheads were actually loaded onto a B-52 with live nuclear warheads, flew off on a, uh, a mission, was left on the, on the tarmac, no, no security, everything. So these, these nuclear um, missiles were left adrift, so to speak, uh, over a lengthy period of time. That came out, it was very embarrassing for the Air Force. They did an internal investigation, promised they would fix everything with their uh, nuclear record keeping, et cetera. And so in 2008, it uh, came out that the Air Force or that the country of Taiwan, the Taiwan military had ordered from the US Air Force, who was their supplier uh, for certain aircraft parts, some helicopter parts for a helicopter. And it arrived in a big uh, barrel, like an oversized uh, storage container barrel, say, so to speak, maybe about six foot by about three foot in diameter. And uh, they put it into their warehouse until they needed it. So that was in 2006. In 2008, they went and opened up the barrel and realized they had a nuclear warhead instead of helicopter pilots. Helicopter parts. Whoa! <laughs> so, That's a heck of a thing to find. <laughs> no, no, just not what you want to start your day with. Yes. And, it, and to clarify, it was the missile nose cone, the top of the missile, mm -hmm. uh, did not have any nuclear, you know, explosive in it, but it had all the classified circuitry, targeting, fuses, etc., in there. Uh, and so that came out, and it was reported up to, they, they called the local military attache. The military attache, of course, sent immediate uh, messages up to the Pentagon and it, this thing broke. So Secretary Robert Gates, who was the Secretary of Defense at this time, uh, really was, from all I could gather, annoyed. You know, there was, they'd had, the Air Force had had in 2007 this, in implausible scenario where, oh, we just accidentally put live rounds into the plane, uh, sort of like the Alec Baldwin of <laughs> the military. And, uh, and so he tests the, and the Air Force had done their investigation, promised they would do better. Of course, I'm paraphrasing all the classified or the um, official documentation. And so he uh, turned to the Navy, who were the other big service that handles nuclear weapons, and said, I want the Navy to investigate the Air Force. So he turned to Ad, uh, the Navy's head of the nuclear propulsion program, Navy reactors at the time was Admiral Kirkland Donald. He was a four-star Navy Admiral and his headquarters was at the Navy Yard. So Admiral Donald had the responsibility for conducting this investigation in the US Air Force. So he convened a meeting at the Navy Yard with all of his top physicists and Navy reactors leaders. And I got a call at the Washington field office because one of Admiral Donald's uh, assistants thought, well, you know, maybe we need some investigative expertise. So we'll ask NCIS to come in. So I went to this meeting surrounded by people whose IQs were like five times mine. Of course, as you well know, Lee, that's not a high standard. <laughs> that's probably true of every meeting. <laughs> but, but, I don't know why you cut yourself, but that is not true. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, so I, I'm sitting there and 
and we had talked about seating and these things. So I'm uh-huh. sitting in a, you know, in the back of the room and, uh, uh, but then they start to talk about developing an investigative strategy. And then some things came up and I put in my two cents, a few things. And I was immediately sort of like talked down to by all these physicists and, you know, and they, oh, these, no, that's not what the animal needs. That's not what we should do in this situation. We need to approach it this way and that way. So it goes for about 20 minutes like that. And I'm honestly, I'm fine. I get paid the same <laughs> whether we investigate the Air Force or not. Uh because it's actually not a felony crime, as near as I can tell. But we're, we, as you well know, NCS provides investigative support for the Department of the Navy on high-profile matters. Um, so at the close of the meeting, Admiral Donald, who isn't saying much, he just he just sits there, and I felt very reaffirming because he pointed at me and said, "I like what this man says, Mr. Howard. Can the NCIS support us in this investigation?" I said, "Absolutely, Admiral." And so we became the major investigative arm. Now, they had a number of nuclear weapons, wonks, knew all the policies, et cetera. But as far as going out, recovering the nose cone from uh, Taiwan, getting key records, interviewing key personnel, uh, and and assuring that the missile had not been compromised, et cetera, et cetera, cetera, we were the lead, uh, though always under Admiral Donald's aegis. And he's the one that did the official, you know, signed the official report afterwards. So it was a fascinating endeavor. One, we got a lot of offers to help us from OSI. <laughs> I'm not, you know, and so, but to keep the, you know, it was very, I love OSI, they're one of our best, if not our best investigative partner. But you, we, I had to keep telling them that the intent of the secretary was to make this an independent investigation. So if OSI is helping us you know, if I have an Air Force officer who's sitting there next to me, it's not really independent, you know, with the Navy. So oh, we had sure. to decline sure. that. But uh, we sent leads out to a number of places to do different things. I said to recover the nose cone, to provide a chain of custody, so to speak. So, um, hey, Chuck, so who, who sure. had the nose cone with it? Was it the Taiwanese? The Taiwanese. Yeah. And they gave it over to the. Uh, wow. They they were not trying to hold on to it. Yeah. They uh they gave it, to, as I recall, and I may have some of these facts a little off, but they gave it to the equivalent of the attache because you know that Taiwan, because it's not an officially recognized place, but there's a, there are U.S. military representatives there that fill the role of an okay. attache. So they were willing to provide it there, and we, but we wanted to make sure that we had it. Uh, we had a chain of custody because we wanted to do, at my suggestion, a forensic analysis, mm-hmm. you know, determine there people were denying, no, I didn't ship the missile, you know, just from a basic <laughs> criminal thing. Yeah. But also, as you can imagine, from counterintelligence concerns, you yeah. wanted to ensure, you know, because it's been sitting there in a uh, a warehouse, an unclassified open warehouse in Taiwan mm-hmm. for a couple of years. And it's also been sitting there for a while, after they deter- you know, for a sh- several weeks since they determined that it was not, not helicopter parts. Yeah. And there are uh, the Chinese People's Republic of Chinese presence in Taiwan is very large. So you have to always be concerned about uh, potential issues. So we got that back. We sent out uh, the missile. It actually, if I recall correctly, it was somewhere in Utah that original the um, component had originally uh, came from. And then it stopped at several places on its way out to Taiwan. Uh, so we sent out leads to people to go out into those locations. Uh, I remember uh, sent out one where Gunnar Newquist, uh, 
was out leading the charge and he as he walked in with the essentially a command authorized seizure to seize records and things and the air force people were busy uh shredding <laughs> all the records connected with this thing so he had to, he had to stop them and uh threaten to take legal action you know and and do that thing so it was really a um a little bit of a keystone cop issue of trying to obscure of course everybody reacts when they feel their careers uh in danger react that way so we got the missile back uh the missile warhead back uh we conducted the investigation determined uh both and again a lot of the administrative just checking their administrative regulations and things were up to snuff and their procedures admiral donald's people were doing it because they know what the navy's requirements are and they you know put the air force there and it was just uh highly lots of problems with the air force's sure. accounting issues yep. uh, that they had noted so we well, get the one uh, thing, but you know one thing I'm, I'm thinking of is what would have mm -hmm. been the chinese response if they had found that the tonic taiwanese had a nuclear tipped warhead in a warehouse there or the or the ability so if you just connected that to an you know nuclear material you know the explosive sure. material you had all the yep. classified circuitry fusing targeting mm -hmm. etc to to do that that would uh, well, I think everybody, based on the red faces of everywhere, I think the Chinese security services quite astutely recognized that it was just, <laughs> you know, as I forget who said that one should never uh, mistake uh, culpability for incompetence. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so they realized that it was just a big boo boo on the side oh of, my the, of the military. So it was, it was bad, and it's always great to investigate these things where you. You have, there's absolutely no way they can pin it on you. So, mm -hmm. so you know, we're, we're <laughs> yeah, doing this and not to make it, it was very serious in, in these sure. things. So we got the, we got the component back. Uh, the, we did a number of things. I can't, it won't really go into some of the counterintelligence aspects of it, but do we essentially assured ourselves through a variety of ways that it had not been tampered with. Uh, we actually found uh, we traced it back, found the actual Air Force technician who had assembled the component originally, and he was, you know, determined that he was the last person to touch these various things through touch DNA and, and you know, some using criminal, standard criminal investigative techniques. So that was uh, reassuring it in most, and the and it was not bad for him to be identified because at the time he put it together, he thought it was clearly labeled nuclear warhead. You know, missile and not, you know, helicopter part 105. Yeah. So uh, we got that uh, done. Great effort by NCIS, great cooperation. It, it really was proof, not only the team at DCWA did a great job, but NCIS overall, because of our, I've always believed one of our successes in, or uh, one thing that postures us for success in this is the agility of the organization. Like I can, and also it's a small enough organization where you and I knew. 90% of the people that were in the agency, you know, <laughs> several right. times through our career. So you can call up and I could say, hey, Lee, could you go over, do this? This is the deal, buddy. You know, rather than writing it out yeah. in a large, or, you know, uh, lead that neither you or I would read, we would just, just describe, you know, <laughs> explain to someone what needed to happen and what happened. So we got that. Uh, we provided that. Admiral Don was very complimentary to us. Uh, said nice things to the director and everyone about, you know, our contributions. 
And I get this call where we have to go over and brief uh, the Secretary of the Navy, uh, Secretary Winters. We did that. I believe Tom Beecher may have gone with me on that. I don't remember, you know, as director, but um, we uh, went over and briefed him. And then we got this call. And so we had we had the nuclear warhead in our custody. Uh, and like I say, it was just a big barrel. You know, it looked like nothing from the outside storage barrel container mm-hmm. and like one of those big oil barrels that you see, sure. you know, in a truck lot or something. Mm-hmm. And so I get this call from SecNav's office and says the secretary of defense wants you to bring the warhead to the Pentagon. Mm. It's an, oh, OK, <laughs> you know, um, yep. He wants it there at the meeting where he um, is going to have frank and candid discussions, so to speak, with the Secretary of the Air Force and, sec- and uh, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, et cetera. So, okay, well, let's do it. So we grabbed the barrel. We got one of those little hand carts <laughs> pushed, and we put the big barrel on a hand cart. I think we took it over in the crime scene van, <laughs> parked in the parking, parking lot of the Pentagon. If you ever want to know how to smuggle a nuclear weapon into the Pentagon, it was easy. You got you it. Know, you you got it covered. It, all you needed was an NCIS badge and and five tired-looking agents <laughs> carrying this damn thing, you know. So we zoom by, you know, flash your badge, get in, you know, uh, take it to the conference room. Uh, I, Mike, I remember Michael Sliwa was there. He was uh, ASAC, and he so he he with three other agents were at the conference room. I went to the sec, SecNav's office, gave him another briefing, walked down with the SecNav to the secretaries conference room and uh being the way i am i couldn't help making a crack about you know god can you believe the even for the air force this was pretty bad <laughs> you know the way this all turned out and secretary winters turned on me and said it's on there but for the grace of god go us you know so you should, you know you, you do not doubt that there's you know that you know that we are perfect in the navy either you know it's just very unfortunate this happened yes sir they're sorry i didn't apply to the situation <laughs> um so we go down there and we're standing there we put the put the missile thing in the conference room we're standing on the outer and exterior of the room and the secretary of the air force comes in i think his name was michael Wynn, and uh and he seems like the nicest guy in the world yeah, so he's shaking all of our hands. Oh, thank you for this. Oh, yeah, no problem. And I uh, and this, uh, the chief of staff of the Air Force, the four star runs the Air Force, came in and, and you know and a bunch of people and went into the room. <laughs> when they came out, they weren't shaking any hands because basically they, I believe the SecDef asked for their resignation at that point. And so it came out that they both he fired both the secretary of the Air Force and the uh, chief of staff of the Air Force because with over these two incidents. And in fact, they had, um, I think there were like, I was looking it up today, six Air Force generals were disciplined, two Army generals, about six colonels, and uh, in a, a range of other people uh, received disciplinary action, forced to retire, et cetera, out of that thing. So I hadn't, it's the only NCS investigation I was involved with where we took out a forced, you know, a chief of staff, four star, and a secretary of the air force in that regard so and i think on the positive note highlighted 
some real problems in nuclear weapons accountability. And, you know, and I think some of it was just a fixation on technology. And sometimes, you know, those barcodes don't mean what they think. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Wow, that's interesting. So so, uh, there was no criminal intent here. It was just a, a problem with the system, right? Well, we didn't. You didn't know until you, yes, at, at the beginning, you didn't know. Oh, was this malicious? Was this part of sure. some plot to send classified material there and we'll leave it in the warehouse and nobody, you know, the, it's almost like a dead drop and nobody picked it oh, up, yeah, sure. you know, those kind of things. So you could rationalize an, uh, a legal reason for us to be involved in the investigation anyway, to deter, exclude sure. any criminal culpability in the, in this, because it would be a clever way to get classified material out of the country. If you thought about it, you know, to do it, if you had control over that kind of system. But um, no, it was, you know, as say it boils down to incompetence and mm. and it's very, un, very unfortunate, but it's led to some uh, needed remedial measures for our nuclear weapons material. So that I'm very proud of the activities, not just for DCWA, the DC field office, but also the other people, Gunner and the other NCS agents that helped throughout on this, which is they all have real crimes to work through to go and grab administrative files. On I can only like imagine the intensity of Bob Gates when he walked into that uh, that conference uh, room. Yeah, I, I had, was more than happy to be on the outside. <laughs> I heard it was pretty Those are rooms. That's, that's a time when you don't want to be in a room with elephants. No, no, no. So he said it was, um, you know, I, I believe he fought, you know, asked for resignations there. Uh, I read later in his memoirs, it may have been a couple of days later. I don't know. But it was clear when I looked at those guys' faces when they came out, it was clear that they knew their careers were over. So, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure he let, let it be known that their careers were over at that particular meeting. Amazing. Uh, and, and, and perhaps deservedly so. You know, accountability has to start at the top yep. in, in this case. Um, as opposed to, oh, we're going to um, court-martial the E3 who who mislabeled the package or something like that. Exactly. You know? Which yep. uh, you and I have both seen quite a few times as sometimes a response. Sure enough. So this, I think this was appropriate and, and good leadership on the part of the Secretary of Defense. So, yeah, he was a good Secretary of Defense. I always admired uh, uh, Secretary Gates as, the, as our leader in those times. Yeah. I think he and he was able to do it under several two administrations and able to, you know, yep. I thought I thought did a fine job. And I, I, I think did, Secretary oh, Lincoln, I, I agree. I think he did a great did a job. job with the um, yep. with SECNAP. So that was uh, that was one case. Another case involving SECNAP, which uh, well, a little bit with SECNAP, but um, another big case that we worked was the that I wanted to highlight because it really showed off the great work of the people in the office, particularly our Quantico uh, resident agency under Heather White Powers. Uh, now she's married Bob. <laughs> As, <you> know, <laughs> uh, fantastic, fantastic agent investigator, her team, great investigators. So we had uh, potential sabotage of Marine One, the president's helicopter. Mm. So what happened was Marine One was lifting off I guess it wasn't technically Marine One yet until it picked up the president. It was lifting off to p- pick him up in Kennebunkport, George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And 15 minutes into the flight, the engine failed and had to make a, 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 an emergency landing, almost crash landing. You know, And so they immediately did a autopsy, essentially, of the engine to figure out what 
what went wrong. Mm -hmm. And what they found was some farm material had been uh, ingested into the engine or had been put into the engine and it could only have been put there intentionally. So I, I know exactly what happened, but it's, I also learned through this a great way to sabotage a helicopter sure. <laughs> in a very easy way. So we yeah. don't want to publicize the exact sure. material. Yep. It was clearly human uh, intervention had happened with this particular, this mm -hmm. particular uh, engine. So that launched a media investigation because the presidential helicopter program is kept under many layers of security. Everybody mm -hmm. that works on these engines has to go through full background investigations. There's all it's there's there's a separate section in the Sikorsky plant uh, where these engines are worked on and overhauled and 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 worked in. And then and then they're shipped down to Quantico where they're put into the helicopters or, or removed from the helicopters as needed. So we immediately first, of course, we're first looking at HMX-1 and did exhaustive interviews, polygraphs, et cetera, no indication of any problem with HMX-1. So then we uh, were in, I should say from the outset that Secret Service was obviously very concerned, but Secret Service just didn't have the, quite, I think professionally recognized that it was best done, this investigation was best done by us. Of course, they were monitoring it closely because yeah. they just didn't have the, the resources or the knowledge of the military and, and the, the, the system. So eliminated HMX-1, essentially. So we're looking more into Sikorsky. Uh, we're going up to the Sikorsky plant. I think it might've been in Connecticut. I know somewhere in the Northeast. Uh, and our agent goes up to conduct some, or agents go up to conduct some inquiries. They won't let them in. So they call back and say, you know, Chuck, we can't get in the plant. They won't do it. I say, well, have the plant, have the, plant manager or his general counsel call me or get me their number and I'll call them. So their general counsel of Sikorsky calls me. Um, and I always like these things because general counsels at Sikorsky probably make 15 times what I make with that's, that's, that's always, <laughs> sure, always nice to be a little adversarial relationship with them. Yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> as an attorney, I took a little bit of light out of this. So he's there and he's, well, we can't, you know, I said, that's fine, sir. I just want to make sure I have your name right because I'm going to call the Secretary of the Navy. My next call is the Secretary of the Navy, uh, Secretary Winters, and I'm going to explain that Sikorsky is refusing to cooperate with an investigation into attempted sabotage of the President's helicopter. I just want to make sure that that's clear that you understand that's what you're telling me. That you're, you're not going to <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great way to put it to him, too. Yeah, yeah, just very calm. You know, it's just, yeah. sir, I understand, you know, you've got, you've got, you've got to represent your client. I just want to make sure we're clear mm -hmm. of what I'm going to tell the Secretary of the Navy. Oh, no, no. He said, <laughs> he said, all right, all right, you guys, all right, you guys can come in finally, and, which was a mistake on his part because I just did go in and they found <laughs> a lot of stuff. And they did through extremely hard work going through because they, uh, what they did was they went through all the work records of everybody who'd worked on engines and particularly using the serial number of this engine and taking back over eight years uh, that had been in the system and people worked. And they found that in this hot, super classified, hot, highly vetted section for which Sikorsky was getting paid a ton of money you know, to, do, to put on all these additional security procedures, they had an alcoholic, <laughs> you know, mechanic with a record who's trying to work 
you know, it was working on this engine. So we interviewed everybody that worked on the engine. Of course, we interviewed the mechanic. Mm -hmm. He's, it was one of those classic, and we were talking earlier offline about the read technique, but it's one of those classic things where the guy just drops his head. And (laughs) I always thought there was going to be something wrong with it. And he remembered actually dealing with this kind of farm material when he was working on the engine and he was hung over and he couldn't remember if he had done everything the correct way. And that was clearly the, the source of this. So, uh, we came out we, and, and we extracted from Sikorsky, ultimately, just as an aside, we extracted from Sikorsky uh, a promise not to fire the guy because he had been, he, he cooperated with us. He told us, you know, everything he allowed us to put this investigation to rest. I said, this is, you want to keep your Navy contract, <laughs> you can't fire this guy because it's not, it is his fault, but it's also your fault because he shouldn't have been there. You know, it, it, he could have worked on the, uh, you know, other areas etc. So he, uh, we did that. We've traced almost back like six years because the engine had then sat on the shelf for several years and then been put into the president's helicopter. So we were able to find the person who put the uh, farm material responsible for injecting the farm material that caused the engine to fail. Cause this was the first flight with this engine. Okay. You know, so when they replaced so the it was a pretty, it's a fairly new engine. It's just, it's been sitting well, it's, it's been, it's like a rehabbed engine. Oh, okay. So they get an engine, they put, you know, sure. get it, put it in. Uh, so the first flight with this, in, in this helicopter with this engine and when it would fail. So we were able to determine there wasn't sabotage. It was this individual. Uh, so two fun things got to happen out of that resolution. One was I got to Secretary Winters said i you know need you to come up to my office so i was at his office uh and the ceo of the corporation that oversees sikorsky like the big guy in charge of all these things comes in uh with his general counsel and to meet with the secretary and and me you know so i'm just sitting there you know and and secretary winter just turns to me to tell him what you found so, so I go through <laughs> the investigation, you know, and make, you know, the, you know, Jacques, you know, <laughs> you know, these people were, you know, then we found this and you, would you believe it, Mr. Secretary, under this high level things, they, we let this person with all these problem indicators and things were working on the engine. But we, you know, but I, I didn't over, over embellish it, but I explained, essentially gave a brief on what the investigation was then turned and listened to the, one of the best butt chewings I've ever heard from the secretary of the Navy to the CEO of Sikorsky and this holding corporation, the, the overall and his general counsel. And I don't know how much the general counsel was getting paid, but he didn't say a word throughout the entire thing. <laughs> just sat there. The CEO was trying to talk his way out of it. And secretary Winter was having none of that. So he, yeah. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. And uh, watch them get and He threatened to cut off all their contracts with the Navy, threatened to do all this stuff. You know, he wanted to see remedial reports, wanted to know all the changes they were making, all this stuff. And uh, that, that was great. So that was good. And then so that was a fun experience. The other fun experience or, or two more fun experiences out of that or interesting ones was I got a call that the White House wanted to get a briefing on the investigation. So I go over to the White House. And uh, so NCS, well, I don't think was uh, stupid enough to send me by myself. So Scott Jacobs came as my chaperone. So Scott <laughs> Jacobs and I go over to the White House to, yeah. uh, to brief. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was fun. You know, I've never, never been to the White House in that capacity before or since, but it was fun to go in and mm-hmm. talk to, it was presidential staff, not president, but, you know, sure. and, and to greet the staff on the, uh, on the investigation, what we found, how we thought, the, think the problem has been remediated, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And um, they were all very appreciative of that. Sure. So the last thing was it came out and the Secret Service calls and said, listen, the president was really happy with you all resolving this issue. He's, mm-hmm. he's going to come through Quantico. We can arrange for a photo op for you or your, and your personnel. I said, well, it doesn't need to be me, but it should be, you know, Heather. And they called Heather and Heather knew about it. And so they said, Heather and our case agent should be the ones having a pre- picture with the president. And they got pictures, which I think are probably still displayed in their respective offices or homes, you know, of them with oh, President yeah. Bush. That would be a great, great photo. Was very gracious in the way, you know, very complimentary of them. So that um, that case, I think, was impressive. And I still have an example of the farm material in my office at some point in case I have to sabotage a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, my so, goodness. That's because funny. it's... It, it's almost guaranteed to make it fail in 15 minutes after it takes off. So, wow. Well, that's, that's a, those are great stories, Chuck. I and mean, as far as, you know, I, it, you know, the one thing that the audience doesn't really understand is when you're the special agent in charge of an office in Washington, DC, it's like no other office in the agency because you're in DC and you're going to get that call from the secretary of the Navy or the white house you know, like you won't see that in Yokosuka, Japan, where the sack is, he's not going to be called to the White House. But it's no. just great stories about being a sack in DC. Well, you know, it's, 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 I think that that level of leadership, and you're absolutely rightly, and I think that level of leadership is similar to what we encountered in Iraq, mm-hmm. because as the head of counterintelligence in Iraq, you're going over to meet the ambassador, you're going to meet sure. General Casey. Uh, to brief, you know, meet chiefs of station, MI6 chiefs, you know, everybody at a, a certain level and being able to be heard and listened to and to have a voice. And it's always fun where your voice is heard. And and, uh, and if you feel not just to, oh, I was there, but if you feel you were able to actually make a somewhat of a valuable contribution to, you know, a, a resolution of those things. So that was good. So that's, that's pretty much the end of the DCWA story. So okay. in uh, as far as in Iraq, as I mentioned, Iraq, it was mm-hmm. uh, it was very interesting in 2006 when I was there. It was I said this was prior to the surge. It was a very dicey time for us. Uh, we were taking we had just had a patrol that was essentially uh, hit by an IED, lost two people, others, other casualties, uh, building that morale is important, but the types of work we do, and we can't go into a lot of detail, as I mentioned on that, uh, to the classified nature, but I can say this, and I think I can say this because it was in the citation they gave me when I left. So I could, so I assume that they sanitized that, yeah. that release <laughs> that, you know, our team, and I mentioned we had the team in Baghdad where you were, you were at, we had a team in Basra and a team up in Kurdistan in Erbil. But our teams were responsible for uh, disrupting government, uh, rogue government death squads that were going out and doing max executions. We uh, identified and took down several illegal torture and detention centers. Uh, we 
defeated a number of foreign intelligence service efforts to ex exploit both U.S. military operations, joint operations, and the Iraqi government uh, in, its, in its time there. And I think those types of operations, could we, if we had a completely free hand to write a book about it, which is fantastic. And the great work done by our agents, quite often at extreme risk. Uh, I, you know, as you know, we, we were constantly being shelled. The people in Basra, I think, actually had it the toughest when I was there. They were getting rocketed almost all the time. Uh, we got rocketed in the in the uh, a rocket attack against our building and the FOB. And all it did for me was knock me out of bed in the morning. And as, <laughs> as it came in, so I found myself flying out of my out of my rack. And so I thought I called their uh, their rockets the best alarm clock we had. Which I should make Jeff. Was, was that at the White House before we moved to the new place? No, that was that, that was, was at the Union. Union. Okay. Yeah. And I shouldn't joke because they, there was an Australian military unit there that was intense outside and they had take they took some ser serious casualties. But yeah. you know, for us, that building was so solid that you could get mortared and rocketed and it was pretty we were pretty safe. So, yeah, I, I don't remember I know there were some rocket attacks while I was there, but I don't remember them, uh, you know, even hearing them hit the building, you know, because that's yeah. such a solid well, building. Well, believe me, as you know, I'm built for comfort, not speed. So to knock me out of my rack was pretty. I would say, I think your, your, your quarters was on the outside of the building. Mine was in well, yeah. It's a disadvantage of the E-ring type mentality. <laughs> You're out with that, so. Uh, but I could, you know, the um, so I can't commend too highly the efforts of not just the NCIS, but the OSI and the uh, and the Army agents. One very quick little story. So I was flying into Iraq for the first time, uh, C-130 coming out of Kuwait, and I'm sitting next to this OSI agent, and he just, he, you know, he's just chatting. He doesn't know who I am. He doesn't, I don't know who he is, and he's oh, you know. He, you know, it's, I'm with OSI. I said, oh, I'm with NCIS. Said, he starts making fun of my gear because the OSI had all these high speed things. And we had these, yeah. you know, SCG <laughs> rehab, you know, kind of, it was serviceable, but it yeah. wasn't really, I didn't look really high speed, I guess. I didn't look, yeah. oh yeah, you yeah. get yourself one of these and one of those. That doesn't, that's not going to work. And, oh, okay. All right. Well, he said, well, don't worry about it. We'll take care of you. You know, if we, you know, I'm sure I, I, I'll get OSI to give you a lift to where you're going. I said, I think they'll probably send a car for me. <laughs> no, 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 don't worry about it. <laughs> so, so we land and and he was a great guy. And then we we stand there. And then, of course, the, the, the skid motor detail comes up. Oh, we're looking for our new director. He said, oh, uh, I guess you're going to be my boss. <laughs> yeah, but the first thing I want is your gear because that looks better than mine. No. <laughs> but he, and it was, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, oh, it was great. Regard. And uh, so great people, great people overall. Yeah, those are good times. I mean, is uh, even though we were under constant hazard of being, you know, killed, um, it was still yeah. a good time. It was a lot of fun. No, it was it was good. I you know, and like I say, I think of the three places, Basra, particularly during our tour tour, which I don't know if you got down to Basra at all, never did yourself, but it was. At that time, uh, I know they were getting. I remember we used to do the briefings every day. They were getting hit so many yeah. times. I was like, Kurt Thomas, who was the SSA down there, did a fantastic NCS SSA in charge of the team. I think did a fantastic job. Uh, and I remember when we were down there, we were getting shot at. We were getting. They were getting while we're out on patrol, getting rocketed while we're there. You know, it just was a very 
but the professionalism and morale of everyone was just superb. So it was a, I think, overall for everyone, it was a good time. And it's as we well know, subsequent to our time in Iraq, there were counterintelligence patrols that were ambushed and things like that. So keeping that operational excellence, as I may have mentioned before, uh, um, when I returned as the head of this uh, director of the SCID to DC and this NCS executive has said, Chuck, I bet you're proudest of the fact that, you know, you kept everybody alive on your watch. I said, well, actually I'm proudest of the fact that we accomplished our mission and we kept everybody alive, <laughs> you know, so yeah. in that regard. So that was good. So I, I think that's, uh, that's it for the Iraq stories. Well, and, it was, uh, Iraq was again, um, you know, I tell people all the time, nothing will impact your life other of, of, you know, the work you do is the work that you're saving lives. And I know that we saved a lot of lives while we were there uh, by doing the operations that you directed. So it was really excellent work by everybody, I think, and uh, to ensure that we did right. Yeah, it was, uh, it was great. And it was great joint work and the support I mean, let's face it, how many raids uh, have you, we gone through in our NCS careers where you had striker units, <laughs> battalions coming in, <laughs> That's true. army troops running. In M1 Abrams with a barrel pointed at the door. Yeah, take down. So, which is a lot better than me in a six-shooter <laughs> trying to <laughs> knock on a door. Um, oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So that was good. Um, so that's the end of that story. And one last story. Uh, when I was stationed in Paris Island, which is 93 to 96. Uh, I was stationed, uh, I worked primarily at a MCAS Beaufort, which is a uh, Marine Corps air base. It's FA-18 squadrons down there. And uh, it had about the same population as Paris Island. We had a lot more cases out of there because in Paris Island, other than the rogue drill instructors and, you know, and other issues we uh had, uh, and unfortunately, because of the high stress over there, suicides and things that happened out of Paris Island, but the, the recruits were pretty much locked up. We did, uh, we, though we did have an interesting uh, case. I don't know if I mentioned it before. Um, we did, had, did have some that you you just couldn't make up. Like we, the cook who, uh, it was a corporal, he was a cook, and he managed to convince recruits that uh, from the female training battalion that if they had sex with him, he could promise them their choice duty station after they graduated from recruit camp. So he, it was quite satisfying locking him up. So there were cases, but we, uh, at the Did time, you him his, his choice of cell space somewhere yes. around America. <laughs> yeah. Oh, just a scumbag. So it was Golly. very happy to lock him up. Uh, but those are the kind of cases coming out of recruit command. Paris, uh, Beaufort had a very large government housing area. It was all exclusive federal jurisdiction. So we had a lot of uh, sexual assault cases, a lot of child abuse cases coming out of there. And none of the other agents really wanted to work those that much. So I ended up with them. And I guess I, I had to the mentality of a child. I was able to talk to the victims and, you know, and, and, and keep through it. So we had several cases that were pretty, um, pretty disturbing. But one that was of garnered a lot of interest and tension. We had... Uh, I arrested this lady, investigated and ultimately arrested this lady who was a, uh, a spouse of an active duty Marine. She was living on the um, on base housing. She was actually a coach with the cheerleading team there. And she 
actually was in the only one I've encountered in my career, an actual pedophile. So a female pedophile, which is, as you know, somewhat unusual. Usually there, there's not by the clinical definition of pedophile, someone who's fixated their sexuality is fixated on underage children. Um, but she, uh, she fit that. And it was just a, uh, a remarkable case in and of that. So it took a lot of investigation, a lot, a lot of her, all her victims, there, there were some female victims involved that, uh, tangentially, but all of her victims were males. And so that uh, took, it was very interesting in dealing with and in, in, in working through that with young males, you know, just hitting, uh, hitting puberty just about that, at that age. And then, you know, being exploited by her, it was just, Horrible case, but we managed to do that case. I think it was the, probably the first sexual abuse case that the U.S. Attorney's Office in Charleston had done in years, but they prosecuted it, and um, that got a lot of attention because of the nature of that. And that was, a, uh, I think, myself, but the other agents there, uh, we all, it, like most small NCIS offices, everybody works on everything. So though I was the case agent, everybody else helped tremendously because with that number of victims and the sensitivities of that, it's not quite as bad as it, like child abuse in a DOD child care center, but it's close because of the cheerleading teams and other factors in that in the military housing area. And so that was a uh, very profile? proud of our work on that case. And she, so what, is uh, the, so what is the profile of a female pedophile that's targeting pu prepubescent boys? They are just post pubescent. They are, they are like they're in the 12 to 13 year old category. Okay. So she, you know, in development. Had a, mm -hmm. yeah, so they could, um, but she, she had kids of her own. She was married, but that was not what she wanted, you know, that's, mm -hmm. and she would actually used her daughter, uh, her young daughter who was about that age to lure young boys over to the, to the house and sort, sort of like, uh, almost acting as a pimp for her daughter, but to bring these boys over that she could then engage with. And it was just, it was just a very sad case overall. So was she a Marine spouse? Yes. Yeah. Wow. And, and her husband would deploy and things. So she would, mm -hmm. you know, be on her own quite a bit. And, uh, that was, you know, I just mentioned that because that was on every, every case like that, of course, is tragic. Yep. And you want to do your best, but this one was just unusual because we, mm -hmm. the usual, and believe me, we arrested a number of uh, male uh, mm -hmm. child abusers in the, yep. during that summer. We, uh, or not that summer, we used to, during that the time that I was there, those three years. In fact, uh, and if you remember the old days where uh, we had when you investigated a. Uh, child abuse thing you had to and you, you you searched the suspect's house you had to seize all the v uh dvd well they did have D dvds back then they had vhs's you know tapes and things because people would keep records so i will say the movie ice station zebra will never be the same for me again because uh was this guy had abused we suspected him of abusing his neck it was marine corps gunnery sergeant we suspected him of abusing his next door neighbor's uh daughter uh and indeed he did so we took but we needed to get that evidence so we're looking through all these videos just and so it starts out with rock hudson and 
Ice Station Zebra, good sure. old fashioned movie, and yeah. boom, shifts to him. Because a lot of times they they put the um, yeah the recording in the middle so that yep. hoping to defeat anybody looking like that. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to uh, to catch him in that, and that was uh, wow. So in the the female, how many victims did uh, did you guys identify? <clears throat> I think, as I best recall now, I may have this wrong, but I think there were uh, seven confirmed. And then we had a number of, you know, there's, you know, we're certainly not clinically abused, but, you know, it just corrupted tangential and may have been, but we just couldn't uh, determine that. So this, she, uh, were you able to determine this is the first time this is her, how she started or was she on other bases and she'd done this other bases? No, I think this was the first time because of her husband's deployment schedule and things that she had had the opportunity, at least was able, we were able to determine. Sure. Uh, and, and it's just was a unique, <clears throat> who knows how, what we did determine was also that she had been abused herself as a child, as a child, which is a reason, but not an excuse, you know, for sure. warps people's sexuality. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it was, uh, it, it, it was just an unfortunate act. I will tell the one somewhat amusing aspect of it so we were going to arrest her name was debbie and mm-hmm. so we arrest they're going to arrest debbie and uh uh and at the time ncis did not have civilian arrest authority okay so we got the local uh a local fbi agent agreed it was going to help us out and mm-hmm. so he came by with me and he uh his name was demetrio and demetrio said oh uh, you know i this will be, it's going to be an FBI arrest. So I'm going to, I'm the one that's going to put the cuffs on us. All right, no problem. You know, so we called her into the NCS had a little office in the provost marshal's office there at the air station. So mm-hmm. called her in the provost marshal office to allegedly to get some of her stuff back that we had seized. Mm-hmm. So she didn't know she was going to be arrested. So she comes in, she's in the, in uh, our office. I said, go ahead, Demetria. I'm from the FBI and I arrest you. And so she jumps up on my desk and starts throwing stuff at Demetrio. <laughs> and, I'm going, you know, and I'm going, uh, you got this mind if I assist you? Or is <laughs> <laughs> so we uh I managed to get, talk her off my desk, get her down, we arrest her, do the, get the cuff. He puts the cuffs on her. Uh it's important because we get in the car because it's, you know, a bit of a ride up to Charleston, mm-hmm. you know, from from uh, Beaufort. So we go up to Charleston where she's going to be turned over to the marshals service, federal arrestee. And so I'm in the back seat. Demetrio's driving he, and being the junior FBI agent at the local office, he had this old beat up car. You know, as, the, as the, every law enforcement agency has a tradition, the junior agent has to have the uh, uh, must beat up car. So we're in, I'm in the back seat with Debbie. She's calmed down now. Debbie always kind of liked me. Maybe it's, I have a childlike personality. I don't know. But so she, so Debbie's in the back handcuffed. I'm sitting back as you remember the way we transported and Demetrio's driving and, uh, Debbie turns us. Mr. Howard. Yeah. She says, is it supposed to be like that? She'd already slipped out of her cuffs. So I said, no, Debbie, but thank you for pointing that out to me. This is the way it's been. So we stopped, got her, I, I cuffed her, made sure she was cuffed appropriately. So then Demetrio takes off 
like a bat out of hell and we're driving up the road and the we get stopped by a state trooper pulled over and Demetrio was a uh, a short guy somebody had just he's from new york why they sent him to south carolina i have no idea but he's a short guy new york accent new york accents are not guaranteed to um elicit sympathy from a South Carolina state trooper. So, so, so he pulls over. Debbie and I are just sitting in the back laughing. <laughs> you know, trooper comes in and says, yeah, son, you can't know. I'm an FBI agent going on. Well, you're in the FBI? <laughs> he said, oh, yes, yes, yes. Buddy, this can't be an FBI car. This is a POS. Laughing. The suspect, or the, Debbie's laughing. I'm laughing. And then and then Demetrio gets out and says, well, shows him his creds and things like that. And he said, aren't you a little short to be in the FBI? <laughs> so Demetrio's getting mad and we're getting mad. But we're entertained. Um, so if I trooper releases us and we <laughs> then go off to deliver the prisoner to, to Charleston. But Debbie was laughing oh, half the way up. Which, <sighs> <we'll see. laughs> always those good, the, the, it's always good to tell a good FBI story. Make your day. It, it, it is. I love the FBI. Great people, but in each, yeah. you know, thank goodness for helping. But it was a, it was funny because, as you know, in the days before the arrest authority, you know, we had mm -hmm. to work it around. You mm -hmm. always had to have some hook. I think we still arrested the same number of civilians. It just we needed to have a hook or somebody's authority yeah. to blend off. And the FBI in Beaufort were not busy at all, so they were always trying to snoop around for cases. Sure. Uh, debt. It was hilarious. Uh, Demetrio on another case tried to get onto the um, base housing area, and I got a call from the provost marshal's office, the MP at the gate. Some guys out here saying he's an FBI agent, but I'm not going to let him in, Mr. Howard, because you know, we only let NCIS agents in. Isn't that right? Like, yeah, that's absolutely right. Put him on, you know, Demetrio. <laughs> you know, I'll let you in, but you got to tell me why you're there. <laughs> 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 Peter is oh, a great man. guy, wonderful guy. We used to keep a, we had a lot of friendly rivalry. Every office mm -hmm. has uh, people who have wild ideas, like aliens have come in and things like oh, that. So <laughs> yes. when we had those at Ferris Island, we um, said, well, you know, this this sounds like a very serious case, but this is really an FBI jurisdiction. So we would send them to the yeah. FBI office. We all and did we'd that. say, ask for special agent Demetrio Blank Blank. <laughs> He's the specialist. <laughs> Probably not tactically wise, but we would. Oh my we had a lot of fun. And they would do the same to us. It was a great, it was a great working relationship at the time. It was the p passing of the phone calls, passing of the That's duty right. calls from agency yes, to agency. Absolutely. Good, good stuff. We used to do that as well. Chuck, going back to your uh, job at headquarters after your SAC position, can you? go into that a little bit deeper? So I think one thing I'm very proud of in my time at NCS headquarters was the being heavily involved in the buildup and uh, structure and design of the intelligence directorate and, and the intelligence and information sharing director. And I described where I'd been the AD for information sharing that was became the intelligence. And we had the human aspect of it, which was an operational thing. And that I talked a little bit about that, but the big thing for me looking in was 132s providing the analyst, 132 is the, the job category for civilian intelligence analysts right? with an NCIS. 
and providing professional career tracks and training and equity in uh, consideration as team members with the agents in the overall NCIS enterprise. So I was very proud of what I accomplished there. It was a bumpy road. There was uh, a lot of times you say, oh, you're an agent. What are you doing being in charge of the intelligence director? And now they, they, and they have 132s in charge. But I honestly believe, maybe wrong, that it took someone who's familiar with the agent side and someone who had an Intel background like myself to, to try to drive that and, and explain Intel to agents and explain agents to to, uh, to Intel analysts and bring that together into a global directorate. And one thing we did, which was very unpopular, a lot of the local field offices, bring everybody who was a 132 in, in under code 25, under the directorate of intelligence. We did that to centralize hiring, job standards, training, and provide career progression to where they could go up themselves to, and we uh, designed a position of senior intelligence officer in the field offices. Uh, we refined roles for operational 132s who were involved as well as the analytical roles. And to me, what brought me great satisfaction when we moved from Quantico, from uh, Navy Yard to Quantico and built out that intelligence directorate that now is leveraged by all the uh, military CIOs, it's uh, to me uh, is probably one of the greatest things I believe legacy that I left for the agency. I'm very, very proud of all the intelligence analysts I work with, some brilliant, brilliant people. And I just wanted to make that point that that's, uh, there was a lot to do that, a lot of administration, a lot of breaking down barriers with uh, agent leadership, uh, but a lot of support too from agent leadership. Uh, Mark Ridley, the first director of intelligence we had, and then working through, uh, then after I took over from Mark, and then uh, certainly Mike Dorsey built the MTAC. And then I felt that then following Mike Dorsey, building out the whole DI was, uh, Probably one of the best things I think I left the agency. Hopefully, yeah, I think Never. it was left. I, I think you did a great job I, because I, I was fortunate to use a lot of uh, obviously the intel specialist, the analyst, the operational specialist in building out the 2012 research development acquisition support plan. And had I not had those smart intelligence guys, you know, kind of thinking about our adversaries and what they're looking at five, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, we couldn't really develop a plan to, you know, for field offices to protect RDA out there. So it was really, it was the kind of the way it was designed and everything that literally as a team, I was able to call upon these guys to come in, sit down, and we came up with a plan to uh, build out and better the, you know, the uh, research development actually support. Cause Bob Tracy at the time said, I want, something out of the box and i said well i'm i don't know what that means so i'm going to call some people to do and um and that was uh you know really really super uh, intelligence uh, analyst and specialist there at code 22 uh, who basically raised their hand and said we can help with that and we can build a good plan integrating those communities the rda analysts the criminal yeah. analysts mm -hmm. the more traditional counterintelligence analysts, terrorism analysts who traditionally worked out of the MTAC, yep. ATAC, and integrating that into an intelligence enterprise that could also leverage each other, getting us closer to intelligence-driven operations, which is the goal in the military and certainly, I think, should be the goal in law enforcement and uh, counterintelligence work as well. 
It works smarter, not harder. <laughs> well, I, no, I totally agree because I remember having a conversation going down to Code 23. This is, we're so stovepiped and going down to Code 23 after talking to some of the uh, Intel specialists and analysts up there in 22 saying, you know, why aren't we looking at like the fraud mission? And because we, when I was doing RDA back in DC, back in the 90s, I always said, man, we're running parallel with everything the fraud's doing. You know, we just do it on a classified level and they don't. And, but we're looking at things from a different picture. Why aren't we all looking at that picture from different aspects so that we can build this program that would be, you know, beneficial to the Department of the Navy? And I remember going down there and trying to explain that. And literally the people, it, it, I was just, I was stunned. The division chief, my counterpart, just looks at me and goes, oh, no, that's, that's just, eh, we're not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I won't name yeah. who that is, but yeah. Had we had a more, I don't know, strategic-minded person at the time, I think we could have presented something. They have something like that now in the organization that was really championed by Sam Worth before he retired. Um, but, you know, it took that level to kind of pull the three, the divisions together to go, hey, take this, that, and let's put it all in and look at it as, as a, a partnership between all the groups to get something done that's good for the Navy. I I think that that kind of integration is important. And I don't want to give any kind of impression that it was all me because it was, certainly wasn't. John Beatty, mm -hmm. who was the first SIO for the organization, fantastic uh, guy, brilliant analyst, photographic memory. Uh, Jay Reed, there are a ton of great analysts who, and analytical leaders and intelligence leaders who allowed us to, you know, really helped and forge that. And some great military people too. One thing that was fun about the, director of intelligence was it was the largest concentration of active duty people we had in, in what is overall almost entirely mm -hmm. a civilian organization. So Perfect. making sure that they were taken care of within their way. The vast majority of our active duty people were Intel. OMS, the Office of Military Support, were never in, you know, their leadership was always mm -hmm. just line Navy. So trying to interact with them or Marines, you know, Perfect. trying to interact with them and, and make sure that uh, our intel types were taken care of and their careers were fostered and made an NCIS a desirable posting for people to come to. That was my job as I retired, you know, was was finishing that. I um, I was coming up, I was about a year away from mandatory because mm -hmm. of coming in as an older guy, somewhat older guy. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is good. And then the um, the director retired they did the selections for the new director. I went and interviewed along with a bunch of other people and right. director Travers got it from ATF. Mm -hmm. That's good. Uh, and so I knew I wasn't going to be the director. Mm -hmm. So there's really no, nothing else to, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the space of a year, <laughs> you know, before I aged out for mandatory. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know, this has been great. I've loved my law enforcement career, but I never really got a lot of um, all the prosecuting out of my system. Right. years before I joined NCIS. Right. So I called back up to, uh, contacted the state's attorney's office in Baltimore where I'd started. Still people there knew me. Mm -hmm. Remember, it's small town, you know, small, small to more, we call it. So there's all this <laughs> number of people. Uh, and I sent them an application, you know, the uh, interviewed with the state's attorney at the time, got hired at probably the lowest post-career salary of many of us. <laughs> so, so I didn't want to that. It's my aversion to money anymore. <laughs> you know, but oh my goodness. came back to Baltimore, was sure that they had fixed all the stuff on the wire. Uh -huh. They had not. 
as it was when I left, unfortunately. Then we we even had uh, we had an issue with this one individual who was killed while he was being transported in a um, police wagon, you know, a, a, a paddy wagon, and there was an argument that he had, whether the cops had done that intentionally or was it an accident. I remember this case? Uh, Is this the back of the van? Yeah, yeah Freddie Gray was the name of the yep. case. So that was a big case, and. There were riots in back, mm-hmm. and so I felt like I was being back in Baghdad because they had Humvees with National Guard guys all around our building. <laughs> so I said, "Oh, great! I, I leave the military and NCIS, come back to my beloved hometown, and I'm back in a war zone." So, but that walked um, through there. So I stayed at the state's attorney's office. Went uh, was assigned to the major investigations unit. So we did uh, criminal gangs, violent repeat offenders, wiretaps. So it's probably as close as the prosecutors you would see on the wire to what we were doing right. <clears throat> and uh, did that. It was change of administrations. Uh, the state's attorney had originally hired me, lost the election, new lady came in, uh, stay there a while. It wasn't the change, that drove, but I was looking for, it just wasn't a great fit as much anymore. And my former boss at the state's attorney's office, one of my former boss at the state's attorney's office was over at the attorney general office in Maryland. Yeah. He said, you know, Chuck, are you happy there? I said, well, I can leave, you know, if there's something good. He said, well, I've got a couple of jobs opening right now, but one, I really need a, uh, somebody who's been a supervisor before because I have this unit that uh, um, their boss retired. None of the senior guys want to be a boss. They won't make much more money as a boss. They don't want to, you know, do right. it. And it needs leadership and it's got problem, some issues. And, and so I said, that sounds fun. And it was supervising child support enforcement mm-hmm. in the state. So mm-hmm. I went over, took over the Baltimore city office, which had about 20 people in it. And then all it was later promoted to take over all the attorney general in Maryland. The attorney generals will uh, essentially prosecute or file both civilly and criminally for child support enforcement you know, particularly for, for uh, indigent or other, other issues. So it was, it was interesting to me. It's still a little bit of criminal, but some family mm-hmm. law things for people mm-hmm. that, you know, kids needed money. And it was uh, great. So I got that, um, did that for several years. And then this job became open that I'm in now. And so a friend of mine wrote me, said, Chuck, this job is ideal for you. You know, look at it, you know, and which thank, thanks, thanks. To her, she did that because I'm not sure I would have gotten the energy to apply. So it was a fairly substantive process. But I looked at it and said, this is a job that I kind of always thought would be a neat job because I know mm-hmm. the role of this being independent, going after corrupt politicians and things of that nature. There's, mm-hmm. That's a worthy target set. But also sure. target set doesn't get you up in the middle of the night. You know, but you work, work big case. You work very closely with the FBI and these things. So I applied and there was a, a very extensive screening things and ultimately was interviewed by the governor and I guess he liked what he saw because he later called and offered me to, you know, said he was going to appoint me. I had to be confirmed by the Maryland state Senate, which happened, uh, without incident. So I was, I was always prepared to defend all my <laughs> bar bills from Thailand or whatever. And, uh, you know, and it's been great. I have a great team. Mm-hmm. Here we have prosecutors. I have four prosecutors and uh, 
about 10, about eight investigators, a couple support staff mm -hmm. uh, who uh, we investigate crimes throughout the state of Maryland, We're, which we either do it completely ourselves or we mm -hmm. work with the Maryland State Police quite often mm -hmm. or other police forces and very often with the FBI in mm -hmm. their political corruption unit in the Baltimore Field Division. So we work, uh, I've had a number of cases that are, uh, we work jointly with them, had some successful prosecutions, mm -hmm. and it's a six-year appointment. And I, uh, four months before my appointment ends, I vest for a state retirement. So that's nice. Nice. I like to retire. I ended up staying in the Navy Reserve throughout huh? my time with NCIS until about 2007 when I retired from that. Very well, uh, very well done. So I retired as a Navy captain out of that. So mm. when I turned 60, retirement pay kicked in for there. Mm. You know, it's what would what gets politicians into trouble the most in your in your opinion? I think it's the same thing that gets. If you look at the Fat Leonard case, mm -hmm. for example, you know, and what same thing that got some Navy guys into trouble is some people work very hard in the beginning of their career and they go through a lot. They go without a lot and make sacrifices. They're out kissing babies and pressing the flesh every night to be a politician, you know, mm -hmm. to get to a certain point. And, you and I think that quite often you feel that because you work very hard, that the rules don't apply to you. Mm -hmm. That, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm don't have to do what the normal people do because I've reached a certain level, you know, right. where it's, I'm, right. you know, uh, and so that, or, and you start to feel entitled to some of the things that people would offer you or, you know, things to get in trouble. So mm -hmm. it can be financial, financial temptations. Mm -hmm. There are some people that, and there are some political systems where it's just that way. That's the way mm -hmm. it's been for years. People, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm from the state of, um, you know, Spiro Agnew, and, mm -hmm. you know, and I, yeah, we've had a, other governors who've gotten a little bit of trouble. So, yeah, so, you know, of course, so, of course. Yeah, so we, um, and so there's there's some institutional corruption, mm -hmm. there's personal corruption, but misconduct can be in a number of different areas. And th there's some of the same things, it, there's parallels to NCIS too, some of the things that we would bust senior officers for. What gets right. a senior officer in trouble? Well, sometimes mm -hmm. they've got sexual peccadilloes that are just coming. Like I um, just, I can speak of this. We charged a uh, mayor in Baltimore City with, not Baltimore City, in, on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, uh -huh. the town with 50 counts of revenge porn. That's one of the cases. Wow. You know, we charged, uh, we investigate others for misconduct in a variety of ways. And that's, you know, I almost have to go back to my person's crimes training mm -hmm. to, you know, remember, but fortunately did a lot of those, mm -hmm. even as a CIA agent in Australia, I spent more time investigating sexual assaults and homicides than I did, or death cases, than I did doing CI work and some of the, some wow. of that stuff, or buying mm -hmm. drugs. Sure. Um, but the, uh, um, so I remember how to, you know, you can work those kind of cases, but that was a little surprising to me. I thought most of the cases would be financial, and there's certainly a, no a number of cases that are more akin to fraud, uh, but people think uh, the rules don't apply. They think they can get away with stuff. Mm -hmm. And it just happens. In the political process, when you stand up political committees, uh, campaign campaigns, a lot of money is flowing through that system. Sure. And so there's that's a temptation to people who aren't usually handling that amount of money. 
Yeah. You know, if I ask you to be the treasurer in my Chuck for Congress campaign, you're all of a sudden mm-hmm. got a checkbook that's pretty full. <laughs> you know? yeah. Or well, if it wasn't me, if it was a popular person, <laughs> Chuck for Congress, that might be that might be tempting for you. And sometimes it just uh, it's people make stupid mistakes. Yeah. Sometimes they're just clueless. And so as a prosecutor, you don't, I think to do the prosecutor job well, be a a good prosecutor, it's not, sometimes the question is not, can I, one of the questions, can I charge Mm -hmm. John Smith with this? Right. Then, but the important follow-on question, should I charge John Smith with this? Right. Why is it technically a violation? What happened? Why, Mm -hmm. why is this? And sometimes you decide to go for, uh, you charge a case and you're not sure you're going to win it. I'm not, you know, now there are prosecutive offices that will not touch a case unless they know they're, you know, it's almost a slam dunk. Yeah. That's not, that's not here because if you do that, you're missing the tough ones. Yeah. And sometimes you have to have the credibility when you're negotiating with the defense bar and others. They say, hey, Chuck will go to trial if he doesn't feel you know, well, that's an interesting that's an interesting point, Chuck, because, you know, when I watch as I observe what's going on with this Fat Leonard trial here in uh, San Diego, um, you know, uh, my sister-in-law goes to every day to court just to watch the proceedings and gives me a full report in the afternoon of what happened that day. And when you look at the prosecution, of course, they had like 29 that pled out, including some people that were involved with these, I think, four or five people that are that decided to go to jury trial. And I'm just wondering if, you know, in the prosecution in this case, it it's not clear as to what the specific charges are, although we know it's bribery in many cases. They kind of it flows through it. When you read the affidavit and all the stuff, you start seeing, okay, this has got to be bribery. But it just doesn't seem like it's uh, been the prosecution's putting it down in a very clear process. Of course, it's a long trial, it's a long way to go. Uh, it's going to be see how the strategy of how well this goes. Is there any kind of idea when you guys are uh, prosecuting prosecuting a case of kind of the, the prosecutorial strategy that you're going to use throughout the case to get to the end game? If, you know, do you have a strong first, second quarter, or are you going to have a fourth quarter? It's going to be a strong. Well, that's yeah. very true. It's there's two things with any of our cases. One is our investigative plan. Mm-hmm. You know that we we talk through. Uh, and how we're going to, and we have prosecutors, our prosecutors are involved from day one with these cases. Right. You know, so if we open, it's sort of the same thing as I use the old NCIS adages. You know, I said, the key decision is whether to open an investigation. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm going to open it, we're going to do a diligent job and go through it. If we don't think it's worth doing, then let's not open an investigation. It looks like we did a shoddy job. And uh, and we're only accountable to ourselves, but still you want to do that. So, Investigatively, you know, I incorporated here a report writing system that's very similar to NCIS's. It's not because I think NCIS is the best in the world. It's the only one I'm really familiar with. So, 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 <laughs> so, so I, you know, so I, I um, incorporate that so that one, we can document our investigative actions. Mm-hmm. So if I get to a point where I decide it's not worth charging criminally because someone mm-hmm. made a mistake or someone screwed up or this rule and regulation was not followed. Mm-hmm. But it's more like an IG type issue. Well, one right. of the downsides, we don't have that many IGs on the state. There's a couple of jurisdictions that have an IG, but most places don't. So, but you, if you can find a state agency that can address it from an administrative perspective, I can refer the matter there. So it, all our investigation doesn't get wasted. 
someone's still going to address that wrong. Mm -hmm. But from a trial perspective, absolutely. In fact, you tons of preparation that we put into our cases because the people we go after are often well off mm -hmm. and hire the best lawyers. Sure. So you got to be on the top of your game. Mm -hmm. And so in the, the easy cases don't go to trial. Mm -hmm. If I've got a ton of evidence on Lee Clements, Lee Clements mm -hmm. is probably going to take a plea if as long as I'm reasonable, about it, you know, what, right. what she's going to be. Um, if, doesn't mean that sometimes you don't get a Lee Clements that says, no, screw it. I'm going to, you know, we're going to go all the way. <laughs> yeah. And then we deal, deal with it. But you do look in how you present to a jury or a judge mm -hmm. you know, of how this goes forward, because some, some of our people, if they're doing something that's really sleazy and embarrassing, they don't even want you to suggest it to a jury. They'll right. do it in front of a judge and try to make it in a, a um, which is a right to try to ensure that it's only handled uh, on judge on legal merit alone. And some yeah. of these cases are law is not absolutely clear. The laws aren't yeah. perfect. So, you know, something wrong happened, but is it criminal criminally wrong? Sure. And for us to charge people, they have to have a corrupt intent in most of our cases. Uh, so trying to depict that to the jury and demonstrate it is, is good. And people, more complex cases, there's a whole art of trying to explain that to a jury. Uh, but that happens in the law quite often, like medical malpractice things and in other corporate litigation. You know, the uh, taking these complex topics and explaining them to a jury in a way that they can understand. Right. Uh, you know, so okay. it's yeah, it is it is challenging, and I don't know how the lawyers, but it's the U.S. Attorney's Office there that's prosecuting it, correct? So that's oh yeah. Well, I, I know that the I know the U.S. Attorney's Office is very. They're usually U.S. attorneys, as you know, are very good attorneys and. Mm -hmm. But they have uh, the the defense attorneys in this case are very good too. They um, these are a lot of them. I know that uh, Lovelace's attorney is pro bono, but is a very good Harvard type graduate attorney. Um, but it, it's going to be interesting to see how this case goes. If it lasts four months, um, you know, it's, what's the long game strategy for the prosecution in this case to get the end game of a prosecution? Because I know they got 29 people that pled out that will probably end up testifying in this case against right. the five that are in there right now. So, and it gets uh, that, you know, if we were trying to do that, you know, I don't know. I can't second guess with the, you know, I, I there's a couple of things I'm sure of. I'm sure Fat Leonard was corrupt. Most definitely. He was doing everything he could to skew the um, economic, uh, the mm -hmm. system to his own economic benefit. And yep. he would, he was not stopping it legal or illegal or those kind of things. And I knew he was in, as you and I were alluding to earlier, he's using the weapons he has at his disposal. Mm -hmm. And there, the U.S. Navy has a long tradition, you know, people don't like to say it, and, yeah. but the U.S. Navy has a long tradition of going into some of these foreign ports and letting their hair down and going wild. Sure. And that's, uh, that's been happening as long as I've been in the military. Uh, mm -hmm. I remember my, one of my summer cruises in, in, um, at the Naval Academy. We pulled in at uh, um, Subic Bay. Yep. You know, well, it was course. an eye-opening experience. I mean, it's just, it's, it is what it is. You know? Well, you know, I, uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how they um, – because that's really kind of the art. The Navy's always gone to the ports. It's kind of the defense strategy is the Navy's always gone to the ports, and it's always been this way. And how do you um, – and, and the prosecution is going to try to establish this corrupt intent by these officers. Uh, so it should be interesting to see how it all works out. 
and it's it is a sliding scale too you know which is how you depict it did i you accept a meal okay that's one thing you accept yeah. you know services of 500 prostitutes that's something a different category Completely you different, know? right you know and so um and if you're a person of influence to be held to a you know a standard and avoid a perception of impropriety mm-hmm. these senior officers uh because it's that that institutional corruption though allows the fat Leonard's to get in there and do this. They don't, you yep. know, it's, it's something that has to be reinforced is the, you know, corruption starts quite often at the top. Yep. Like I talked about go, uh, a case with where they were welding the uh, false bottoms into their five ton trucks to put in right. AK 47s and end up bringing mm-hmm. 30, 40 AK 47s back mm-hmm. uh, along with grenades and, uh, and one rocket launcher. I forgot to mention that. There are a lot, and that's not the only, there are a lot of weapon smuggling cases came out of Desert Storm and others because they had big piles of AK-47s and people were just, you know, taking them. And sometimes just to have a war trophy, you know, dad yeah, has sure. his Luger, I want to have my, you know, thing, whatever. Um, but that particular unit did it on a, on a large scale. And the commander of that unit had actually ordered his men to pillage this Corvette that was there in Kuwait City and had them pull, he was a, co- a, co- a Corvette fancier, he was president of the Jacksonville Corvette Club or something like that. And so he found this vintage Corvette that, uh, and he actually had seized it, had to pull the engine out, mm-hmm. put it in a, build a box around it and embarked it back with his stuff. And his, he's having his troops do that. So his troops see him doing that with a Corvette engine, mm. which by the way, we later recovered the engine. It was in the middle of a stream in uh in a backwoods in jacksonville because the guy got freaked out and dumped it you see him doing that so they have the, you know hey if the company commander is doing that why can't i do this you know and so that kind of um leadership responsibility mm-hmm. uh it goes both ways you know I'm, I'm not excusing there's a lot of guys got wrapped up in this fat leonard scandal some of them i don't know you know probably just and do you really want to be the one person at the party that says, no, we shouldn't get free drinks tonight or something like that? You know, it's yeah. just, you know, it's, it it's should be an interesting case. Yeah, it really should. Really should. So, buddy, that's uh, just on a personal note, you know, uh, three great kids, um, ultimately divorced from Lori, my first uh, wife, and uh, but met about 10 years ago, Shannon, my current wife, and yeah. she's wonderful. Beautiful and, lady, uh, by the way. Oh, well, thank you. You outkicked yes. your coverage there, sir. You know, you, you know, it's exactly correct. And <laughs> the, the Australians were took, using some uh, cricket terms that say the same thing. <laughs> 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 but, uh, uh, thank God. I, I'm always living in fear. She's going to wake up one morning and see what I really look like and just walk out. But uh, she's a wonderful lady. She she worked. We met actually at an SES training wow, class okay. in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Uh, that's where we have a house now. So we split time. We have an apartment in Annapolis, uh-huh. uh, as long as I've got this Maryland gig going and then a house in Shepherdstown, uh, right. which probably be our ultimate retirement venue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so very happy there. My kids are all doing great. That's great. So yeah, that's a good looking family. That's for sure. Oh, well, thanks. They, they all, thank God they all take after their mother. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, Chuck, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, and I, I appreciate all the, the good information. It's been a pleasure working with you in NCIS and, uh, uh, and seeing many parts of the world. I've still got probably uh, some excess poundage from our 
gustatory adventures in Naples. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. You know, yeah. that was another good trip. Yeah, that was. <laughs> it was. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful thing about NCIS. You have stories you can fill, you know, many hours. So if anyone finds any amount of humorous, that's great. But it's just, it's been a true pleasure just to chat with you both. Well, it was a great uh, interview with Chuck. Chuck is a good friend and really enjoyed working with him over the years. And he is, uh, continues to be a success in life doing God's work in Maryland. And uh, I really in, uh, can't say enough about having him joining us. It was, a, it was really a pleasure and an honor to have Chuck on as our guest. I want to thank you, the listeners, for joining us uh, in this podcast. And we're available uh, on Spotify and Apple. And uh, I would love to hear your comments about the show. Um, you can send me an email at NCISpodcast at yahoo.com. That's NCISpodcast at yahoo.com. Please send me an email. Give me suggestions on future shows. Uh, I do have some really good shows coming up, though, uh, with special agents who are critical players in the history of the organization. I hope you all will continue listening. Until next time, fair winds and following seas. We'll see you soon.